Astonishing Legends would like to thank Bespoke Post, Purple, Squarespace, Mint Mobile, Noom, our contributors at Patreon.com, and you, our listeners, for making tonight's show possible. There are some Astonishing Legends with definable inception points. For example, June 30th, 1908, the Tunguska event. March 13th, 1997, the Phoenix Lights. We can all point to exactly when those events took place, when their stories began. There are other legends, however, that are vague in their origins. And these kinds of tales often originate with descriptions similar to, as far back as I can remember, or my great-grandfather used to tell this story that he heard from his great-grandfather. But what if some legends began far earlier in history than we all thought they did? It's the kind of thing we've alluded to on our show before, but never so concisely and effectively as our dear friend and special guest Micah Hanks will do tonight concerning one particular cryptid. It turns out that Micah, a prolific podcaster, researcher, science enthusiast, and author, has been working on a new manuscript, one that will turn into a book that we cannot wait to read. Research for that project has taken him on a deep dive into the origins of one particular legend he's been fascinated with since he was a child, Sasquatch. The legend of Sasquatch walks a line between folklore and, if you believe any of this at all, reality. And it turns out that when you step outside the constructs of a typical Sasquatch story, a look back in history may point to a much earlier origin of this perpetually elusive creature. The name Sasquatch was applied to sightings of the unknown primate in the late 1930s by a man named J.W. Burns. He appropriated it from the Chehalis tribe in British Columbia. The label Bigfoot was used later, around 1958, by journalists writing about tracks and hairy bipedal beasts allegedly spotted in remote areas of the Pacific Northwest. Does that mean that before the use of those terms, sightings of these creatures, whatever they may be, didn't happen? Is it possible that a narrative throughline about this creature could have been severed when older cultures that we know very little about were lost to time? What if Sasquatch has been out there all along? Decades, centuries, or perhaps even millennia longer than we ever previously considered? What if we overlooked it just because we hadn't thought about how differently it may have been described in antiquity? To all who now hear, I say, some white men have seen Sasquatch, many Indians have seen them and spoken to them. The Sasquatch is still all around here. I have spoken. Chief Flying Eagle of the Chehalis Tribe, May 23rd, 1938, Harrison Hot Springs, British Columbia. Join us tonight as our special guest, Micah Hanks, returns to talk to us about his research into the origins of the creature we refer to as Sasquatch or Bigfoot, much of which he is sharing for the first time. we're back. That we are, folks. Uh, well, we have some exciting things to share tonight before we start the show. Firstly, we have successfully done our first real live stream. It was a small yeah. test and it wasn't perfect. There were some audio issues and stuff like that, but we managed to pull it off and you can find the posting of it on our YouTube channel or Patreon page right now if you'd like. It's a video of tonight's discussion with Micah Hanks. We had a lot of fun doing it and it was really just a proof of concept for us and a chance to see how it would work technically and we're hoping to do more live stuff moving 
moving forward. Yes. Well, I think Micah was successful. I think the jury's still out on us, <laughs> but it was a lot of fun, seriously. And here's the next big news. We are, in fact, officially all set for our first listener meetup since way back on December 2nd of 2017 in Los Angeles. You're right, we can't fully blame the pandemic for that gap, but the good news is we're all set for the next one, and here are some of the details. We're going to Nashville, Tennessee for Podcast Movement the first week in August of 2021, where we'll be checking out some seminars and even doing a panel on how our show is made. But after Podcast Movement ends, we're hosting a meetup on August 7th, 2021 at the Pharmacy, Burger, and Beer Garden with ticketed access to our reserved area opening at 6 p.m. and things getting going around 6.30. Yeah, we've got some fun stuff planned, including in-person storytelling by two prior guests of the show from the early days, plus a Q&A session, and wait for it, a couple of special guests. Adam and Matt from Graveyard Tales. But there's a catch, folks. Capacity is limited. So aside from those of us who are there on behalf of the show, there will be 70 tickets available to this. The price isn't finalized, but they won't be much. Also, we're having a special shirt made to commemorate the event. Everyone who attends will get one of these one-of-a-kind shirts included with their ticket purchase. And, of course, you'll be able to order delicious food and drink as well, which you'll be responsible for, so sky's the limit on that. <laughs> but because of the limited capacity, and in order to keep access to the event fair, we're going to be posting a special announcement to our feed at 7 p.m. Eastern Time on July 16th. As long as you subscribe to the show, you should get this when it drops. It'll have a link to the Eventbrite page where you can purchase your tickets. And this link will be made available to both Astonishing Legends listeners and Graveyard Tales listeners. So if you think you can make it, you'll need to make sure you're subscribed to our show and grab that announcement when it drops to get the URL and get your tickets. We're doing this this way because we know not everyone listens right when we drop the show. So we want to give folks a chance to be ready to go to the event link when it goes up on July 16th, 2021 at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. So one last time, this event will be ticketed. You need tickets to get in and they're limited to 70 people. Yes, and Indrid Cold will be the doorman, so once we're full, the door is closed, and anyone who tries to get in after that will be sent to the nearest convenient parallel dimension. <laughs> the Eventbrite link for those tickets will go live in a special short announcement published to our show feed on July 16th, 2021 at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. Okay, people, well, we've got a great show for you tonight. Our friend Micah Hanks is returning with a Sasquatch knowledge bomb, and we had a great time talking to him, so Sarah, cue it up. Hey, everybody. It's Scott with Astonishing Legends. I am so thrilled to be here. We had a few technical issues, so we didn't start exactly on time, but we got it as close as we could. I wanted to uh, welcome everybody to our first live stream with our special guest, Micah Hanks. Uh, next person I'm going to bring up here real quick will be our good friend and co-host, Forrest Burgess, who everybody knows. Forrest, please say hello to everyone. Hello, everyone. And I'm looking into the camera as I do it for the first time. <laughs> <laughs> so it's good to have you here, Forrest. And then, of course, we have our friend, Mr. Micah Hanks, coming up here. Micah, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for volunteering to be a part of this technical mishap. The learning experience for everybody, but always glad to be here with you guys. You know, in fact, when I heard that you guys were going to be talking about Sasquatch tonight, I butted in and said, look, you got to let me come on with you. So <laughs> these guys were kind enough to uh, be accommodating, and here we are. You're the only reason we're talking about Sasquatch. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it, yeah, it's the other way around, but we're, we're so glad to have you. It's such an honor to have you back on the show, and you've been doing some really amazing research lately that predates when a lot of people who look at Sasquatch 
think that all of this Bigfoot stuff started. And it, a lot of them seem to trace it back to the Ray Wallace hoax that we talked about in the Patterson-Gimlin film. And you can refresh our listeners' memories on that or folks that didn't bother to listen to that giant, multi-part, lifelong series that we did. But it turns out that you've managed to uncover some things that might indicate, and I love the way that you've looked at this because it's the same way that we look at things where you're checking how a story is changing direction. And sometimes it's as simple as a nomenclature being different or a culture referring to something differently. And for whatever reason, in modern times, that whole timeline of knowledge is severed, right? Yeah, certainly. First and foremost, I mean, I have to give you guys kudos. The way that you two do your research and the way that you go deep and the way that you understand personalities and historical events, you know, and cultural aspects of, you know, the investigation. I mean, really, there are very few people who do it like you guys do and who go as deep as you do. And I'm not the only person who thinks so and appreciates that. I brought to your attention recently John Kirk, a fantastic researcher, who has referenced you guys when he's gone on other podcasts talking about Sasquatch and saying these guys just go deeper than anybody. And I have to agree. And I think it's really important because we're to a point with this subject where a few of the things that I've kind of noticed, and I'm sure that we're going to get a little into what's the rationale for the discussion of this and the study of it. You know, I mean, how do we separate hoaxes from, you know, what may be true? A lot of people just kind of accept as a foregone conclusion. This was all a hoax. It started in 1958. There's nothing before that. Well, I would argue differently. And again, this is really something I've begun to notice. If we're going to establish proper research methodologies. I mean, there are some fantastic, what I would term avocational researchers, you know, people who may not be trained biologists or zoologists or anthropologists, but people who are learning proper scientific methods, you know, how to apply the scientific method in the field, how to apply forensics, you know, how to apply a variety of different resources while in the field in the investigation, I mean, here and now today in parts of North America, toward the furtherance of trying to establish that there's a zoological reality to Sasquatch. The approach that I take, although I love getting out in the forest and stomping around, you know, in the mountains, I live here in Appalachia. It's one of my favorite things to do. But as far as my research with this, my main focus has been really trying to establish the historical evidence in support of it. And one reason that I want to do that is because, again, this, like you said, Scott, it comes back to the idea that, well, Bigfoot started as a hoax. Two things I've noticed. Countless articles I've read online try to establish this subject by saying, despite its origins as a hoax in California in 1958, believers won't be dissuaded. You know, believers are convinced that there's a creature actually out there. They won't hear anything about the hoax. So one thing that really over the last few years that has become apparent to me is that, well, okay, a lot of people really don't think this goes any further back than the 1950s, and they think it's absurd for people to suppose that there's an actual biological reality to Sasquatch, given that they accept, first and foremost, that it all started in the 1950s. But then we look at the skeptics who have looked a little deeper, and some of them even argue, well, look, the problem with Sasquatch is that there's no evidence in the historical record And if we're talking about a biological specimen, it would have to have been something that was recognized throughout history since Sasquatch and other purported, and again, the term I think that is really favored by most researchers these days, especially Dr. Jeffrey Meldrum of Idaho State University, relict, hominoid, for there to be evidence of them to exist today, the skeptics rightly contend they should be evident throughout history. And since we don't have that, they couldn't exist. Well, so it got me thinking, well, can we go further back? Can we find evidence of possible relics, hominoid observations going back throughout time? 
I would contend, yes, you can. And I hope to present some of my findings for you guys tonight. Honestly, I can't wait. And I was looking at some of the stuff you shared with us. You've already done some really amazing shows on this with your multiple podcasts. You're very prolific. Your approach to this, I think, is really fascinating. And I like the idea of looking past the origins of this. So where do you want to start? Are you going to start with where the skeptics usually leave off? I'll just add here before we start. One, it's a terrific opportunity to have you on here because you're one of the few sources that we've heard talk about this that we know that we could invite on for a chat. But nobody else really seems to be delving into the proto-history, the pre-European history. And I, I do see a lot of what I would consider a bit of a uh, ethno-arrogance, I guess, or just, you know, Western central uh, focus that is more of European study and not taking into consideration the native legends and lore, which, of course, I know it's hard to do from a scientific point, but we have that record as well, and we're not using some of that. So thank you for coming on and explaining to a lot of us, ourselves even, about that history, because we're seeing this also with the UFO history, and that people are saying, well, that really is just a 70s phenomenon. And then we just heard that Lou Elizondo and the Pentagon know that the Tic Tac phenomenon, maybe that craft specifically, has been going on for at least 70 years. None of this is anything new. Yeah, in fact, I actually have personally just a brief anecdote on the UFO topic you bring up there. With all the interest in that, I've found reports of what are described, I mean, objects that are described in terms of being very similar, I guess, to what we would call the Tic Tac today. They go all the way back to the late 1940s. I mean, really, of course, the UFO phenomena, as it begins in modern terms, really starts in 1947 with Kenneth Arnold. Right. I've spent about as much time looking into the proto-history of UFOs as I have the proto-history of Sasquatch. And I like that terminology, by the way, Forrest. I think that's a great way to phrase what we're discussing. So just to briefly state, as, as Lou Elizondo has recently discussed, and I've talked with him a little about this off the microphone I think that indeed, yeah, you find a certain consistency, certain patterns in terms of the descriptions of some of these objects going all the way back to at least right after the beginning of the modern UFO era. For people to look at the so-called Tic Tac, uh, you know, in reference to the 2004 Nimitz incident and Mm -hmm. say, oh, this is some kind of a new experimental technology. You know, perhaps that's true, but there are certainly UFO accounts going back decades prior to that that seem to describe the same thing. But now, as far as the proto-history of the idea of Sasquatch, You know, a few researchers have actually looked at this, at least going back before 1958, but there are some very, I think it would be safe to call it cognitive dissonance that Mm -hmm. erupts from time to time, because as a result of the fact that Bigfoot begins in 1958, there are some researchers that appear to try and make distinctions, and they go through some rather interesting uh, mental gymnastics in order to do so, but they seem to try and separate Sasquatch from Bigfoot and say that these are entirely separate cultural concepts. And then if we go even further back, what accounts are known to exist. Well, these are just, you know, hearsay, myths, rumors, legend. What I hope to try and do tonight is, first of all, go way back. In fact, go back into the BC era, and we're going to bring it all the way up through time, making some notable stops along the way. But then we're going to get back into what you're talking about there, Forrest, with regard to indigenous American legends. Mm-hmm. Because Again, the, the indigenous American legends are very important to me. I do think you're correct. There is some ethnocentrism And it's very unfortunate. Some of my other work I do with the Seven Ages Research Associates, which is a team I co-founded, we look explicitly at archaeology in North America, well, all around the world, but we, we work in North America. And one of the things we try to overcome is the limited perspective that through our little narrow cultural lens, we as humans, no matter where you're from, 
tend to project onto a subject. But again, this happens all too often with Sasquatch. Mm-hmm. And I think that if we establish a certain history before we get over into pre-Columbian American accounts and ideas and traditions that have been passed down, we're going to start seeing some rather remarkable delineations and some also very interesting patterns, I think, emerge, especially as it relates to the idea of the North American Sasquatch. So we're going to start back in time, go all the way across the Bering Land Bridge over into North America and kind of round it out with some more recent history and also some of those indigenous American accounts. So we got a lot to cover. All right. Oh my God, this is so exciting. I can't wait. So yeah, so let's start with the part that inspired you to really look into this stuff. And where was the trigger for you to get going? I was actually inspired by uh, the conjectures, you know, by a a number of skeptics. There's nothing in the history, you know, as far as the historical record that seems to account for Sasquatch. I should also point out there are some other great researchers who have looked at at least the last couple of centuries uh, and have attempted to try and document the deeper history of this subject. And it's, you know, again, being accounted for in the historical record, this primarily in newspapers. And uh, the two researchers really that come to mind, again, Chad Arment has done incredible research. He has now, I think, put out a second volume. And I mean, it's an incredibly thick book. This is like the, the Bible of Bigfoot history, at least of the last two centuries. It's called The Historical Bigfoot. <laughs> Imagine that name, very aptly titled. But in The Historical Bigfoot, Chad Arment has, I mean, he has done yeoman's work in terms of just digging through newspaper archives. And he has tried to find every account that seems to describe, again, what we would term relict hominoids or Sasquatch, Bigfoot as they are known in the modern parlance, and present these in a very thick book that really, I mean, is it's indispensable for researchers. David Politis also, more right. well known for the Missing 411 yeah. uh, book that he has written, but he also has done a book that even goes a little further back than are meant, but features a lot of the same sorts of accounts. And he obviously has done a lot of searching for this kind of information too. Now. As far as what really got me thinking about this, there is an unsung hero in, what would you call it, Sasquology? I don't know. <laughs> uh, and Myra Shackley uh, is still around, but she's no longer active in Bigfoot research. She, I think, actually is, if anything, an Anglican priest, I think, now. But Myra Shackley is and was an archaeologist, and in the 1980s, she wrote a book, which they changed the title of. I think it had initially been called Still Living, Yeti Sasquatch and the Neanderthal Enigma, but then they retitled it and they called it Wild Man Mm. uh, instead of Still Living. But her whole contention is the original title seemed to present was that she thought it was possible that Neanderthals might have persisted until fairly recently, or at least until recently enough that there might have been historical accounts of them. And I was fascinated by this premise because, again, keeping in mind, she was working off of the idea that, well, if we want to try and understand Sasquatch, maybe we should look at Neanderthals. Mm -hmm. The thing that really fascinates me about that is the fact that she's looking at Neanderthals when really there were no other varieties of archaic humans, you know, early hominins that were known in the fossil record apart from human. I mean, we knew about Homo erectus and, you know, Paranthropus, but you go much further back. But in terms of those that might have coexisted alongside humans, during the last Ice Age, during the Pleistocene. I mean, for a long time, it was just Neanderthal. Now, since then, we, of course, have discovered the Denisovans. We also know of Homo floresiensis on the Mm -hmm. island of Flores. Yes. We actually also have some unrecognized varieties of hominins, which uh, have, at very least, fragmentary fossil remains have turned up in a few instances. And one example is known as the Penghu jaw fragment that was found off the Taiwanese coast a few years ago. It appears to be 
a Pleistocene era fossil jaw fragment, but it's not a recognized variety of hominin. And Chris right. uh, Stringer, who I believe works with the Max Planck uh, University, actually looks at this and says, you know, if this is Denisovan, they don't look anything like we thought they would look like. But I mean, this probably isn't Denisovan. So it leaves open the possibility that there were maybe indeed fairly recently other varieties of humans, early humans mm -hmm. that existed. I mean, maybe until as recently as when the actual migrants that came across the Bering Land Bridge and first arrived in North America were making their way towards the end of the Pleistocene. Now, again, I'm kind of giving the background here. Myra Shackley in the 1980s focused in on Neanderthals. Since she wrote her book on this, I mean, we've had all different kinds of other potentials as far as early archaic humans that might have been around until fairly recently, and that could also account for some of the reports of Sasquatch-like creatures right. throughout history. And that's really fascinating to me. So picking up kind of with her research, I'd like to kind of lead off really with a quote from her from that book. This written in 1983, the year I was born, guys. I'm dating my <laughs> right now, you know. Wow. This is the quote that she uh, gave us, and this is a, a wonderful one. She says, the very ubiquity of wild men is suspicious. And there is considerable similarity between themes and characters in the mythology of peoples widely separated in space and time. Many theories have been evolved to account for this, allowing for the presence in every society of occasional genuine monsters, in other words, she says, giants, genetic freaks, and so on. It is possible to argue that all wild man stories are merely myths and therefore untrue, and that societies borrow the myths from each other, as was certainly the case with Greece and Rome. But it is difficult, she continues, it is difficult for us to account for the fact that similar stories appear in different continents, unless you postulate some common heartland from which the story is diffused, an idea contrary to modern anthropological thinking. Another possibility, however, is that all societies create wild men because outside their own inhabited or explored territories, there always lie unfamiliar regions which hearsay and travelers' tales will populate with strange, unidentified creatures. Some of these creatures, she concludes will be mythical, the product of the vivid human imagination, but others may be based on genuine sightings of unknown and unclassified species. Right there, Dr. Shackley just, she encapsulates it all, because when we go through history, we have to be really careful, because the idea of the traveler's tales, you know, people in, in the early eras of history where they were just starting to travel to other continents and, and meet with people from other cultures. Yes. They are often described in the parlance of their day through cultural lenses. And this coming back to what you were talking about, Forrest. And so we can't just look at every description of a purported wild person right. and say, well, look, there's a Sasquatch. More often than not, these descriptions are of people. Shackley was hyper aware of that back in 1983, as had been other researchers before her. And we encountered that stuff as well uh, when we were covering Roanoke. It was the very same thing. Absolutely. I mean, again, that's just in, you know, like the late 1500s, you know, that we're having this meeting of cultures. Right. And in fact, actually earlier accounts, you know, from the Vikings, right, in uh, Leif Erikson's mm -hmm. saga, you know, when he comes over, the Vinland sagas rather, and he comes over and he meets the Skraling, you know, which were the indigenous inhabitants of North America. Look at how they were described. Now, again, this is a great example of where a lot of people have fallen into that trap. They have taken that early account, okay, of Vikings sailing over and reaching North America and encountering indigenous residents. And they, you know, you've seen speculations that people have put all over the internet about were these Sasquatches that the Vikings encountered? No, 
you know, they right. just encountered people that they were unfamiliar with, people right. that looked different from them, but that were nonetheless undeniably homo sapiens sapiens, right. not Sasquatch. So again, yeah, you do see that. That's one of the shortcomings, you know, really of, I think, a lot of modern attempts at trying to establish a history for these kinds of creatures. That idea apparently originates, the whole idea of Vikings meeting Sasquatch, it originated from a book written back in the 1970s by Peter Byrne. It's called Bigfoot, Man, Myth, or Monster, or The Search for Bigfoot, rather, was the title. But uh, although people point out that that idea was first raised in that book, anyone who's read that book will see that Peter Burns said unequivocally these were Native Americans that were encountered, not Sasquatch. So right. he, I mean, he tried to dispel the myth right from the outset. Unfortunately, maybe people didn't finish the book and they kind of ran with that. But again, so Shackley kind of tells us what to watch out for, you know, what to be careful about. And so we'll preface this conversation by saying, you know, again, we have to be really careful. Maybe not every instance throughout history of a description of a wild person represents a Sasquatch. Some of them possibly do. I want to look at some mythology. I also want to look at some contenders that might actually represent good evidence of relic hominoids tonight. I had a quick question here, and somebody else uh, piped up in the chat. Could you please explain to us and our audience the importance of uh, with the Denisovans? And I think Scott and I had mentioned them briefly when uh, we covered uh, Gobekli Tepe, because now you're talking about uh, 10,000 uh, B.C. or uh, 9,500 B.C., 10,000 years ago and more, and, and a possible confluence of different maybe subspecies of, of Homo sapien or something different. So Denisovans are essentially a hominin group. People would be probably more familiar with the expression hominid, but in recent... Oh, th that was the other thing I was going to have you uh, explain to us, the, because I know there's slight differences in that one is a little more authentic or, or accurate in its description, yeah. but we're, we're used to saying the other one. We can kind of break all these down because I should probably okay. also offer a brief explanation of the idea of relict hominoid because we've got hominin, hominid, hominoid. Yes. It can get confusing. So as far as the Denisovans, again, this was a fairly recently discovered, essentially they are, are Neanderthal-like. They are kindred, you know, close cousins of Neanderthals. The reason that we identify them as being different is because at the type site for their discovery, Denisova Cave in the Altai region of Russia, we, we find a fossil fingertip, okay, that was designated uh, having belonged to Woman X, as she was called, mm -hmm. to extract mitochondrial DNA so that it can be sequenced actually required essentially the virtual destruction of this sample. But there was successful sequencing, which unequivocally determined this to be a different variety of archaic human from Neanderthals. Mm. So the significance is that for a long time, we only thought that humans and Neanderthals existed as recently as the Pleistocene. It was once thought that around 25,000 years ago, Neanderthals died out in Europe. Now we've pushed that back and we think that the most recent existence of Neanderthals would have been maybe in the neighborhood of about 50, 55,000 years ago. Most of the recovered evidence, you know, the actual fossil remains that we used to base that idea off of, you know, when Neanderthals went extinct, they're found in caves. And of course, you know, there's the famous term caveman. That, of course, no doubt, because, of course, we find a lot of, you know, early human ancestor remains. And actually, these weren't just ancestors. They were contemporaries of Homo sapiens sapiens, because Homo sapiens sapiens, just like us, we existed alongside Neanderthals and apparently Denisovans as recently as the last ice age or the epoch known as the Pleistocene. Now, here's the thing. We also probably interbred with Neanderthals and in likelihood Denisovans too. There's evidence in modern human populations in our DNA that we have carried all this time. 
that shows that we actually interbred with those early human types. Mm. And although they were different from us in terms of their genetic makeup, they were close enough that actual successful interbreeding occurred, which is fascinating to me, to me for a number of reasons. One being, of course, that there are traditions all over the world involving Sasquatch kidnapping yep. humans for what purpose, <laughs> right? And this gets into sort of controversial territory, mm. the idea of interbreeding. But again, we can already look back at our fossil, now extinct, presumed extinct, right hominin types. And we can see that it actually happened as recently as maybe, you know, at least 55,000 years ago. But back yeah. to the caveman thing for a moment. Again, my old contention is that's going to be an environment that's going to be conducive to the preservation of remains yeah. where fossil formation can occur. It doesn't necessarily, in my opinion, and this is just my layman's opinion, but it doesn't necessarily mean that there might not have been Neanderthals, Denisovans or others that maybe actually lived longer than the fossil remnants that we have uncovered right. actually indicate. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's fascinating to me. And I wanted to clear this up when you're talking about the, the jawbone fragment and that I think when people say uh, it was uh, seems to be proven now anthropologically that there was a nine foot tall, a, a three meter tall ape-like creature, Gigantopithecus. And is it mm -hmm. black eye or blacky? How do you say it? Blacky, yeah. There right. were actually two varieties. In fact, there was a subspecies yeah. that also existed around modern-day Pakistan, but the one that we're talking about was a Eurasian ape species known to exist, no, recognized in the fossil record, yes. Okay, interesting, because when we first covered that, and uh, that was news to us, first of all. Uh, secondly, we weren't sure if we were pronouncing it black eye or blacky, <laughs> but, but we'll go with blacky with the eye on the end. And just that, because I think people jump to the conclusion that they discovered a full skeleton, which they had not. Just a, they were able to extrapolate the size of this thing by the fragment of jawbone and just how large a molar was, like three times the size of a human uh, molar, I believe. And, and yeah. that from that, though, they know that this thing existed. That's not in question that you could have a nine-foot-tall ape-like creature. And in fact, there are other early archaic human types that at various times and various places also went through periods where there were larger Paranthropus comes to mind. There are fairly consistent fossil recoveries of Paranthropus from parts of South America that appear to indicate that they might have been as tall as maybe seven feet. Mm. And actually, there are some today. Cliff Berrickman, of course, of finding yeah. Bigfoot fame. I mean, he is very much of the mind that Bigfoot, as we know it today, could actually be a surviving relict. I looked up the word relict, which I had not heard, R-E-L-I-C-T. I love this definition. A surviving species of an otherwise extinct group of organisms. Also a remnant of a formerly widespread species that persists in an isolated area. The other one I like, which is the third, it's like 3B on the definition. This is great. Something left unchanged. <laughs> Something left unchanged. I love that. Mm -hmm. But yeah, so I just wanted to explain that because I, I love that word relict, R-E-L-I-C-T. It's a very cool word. I do too. And I appreciate you, you know, explaining that, Scott, because again, I, I've actually had people write to me and say, I, you know, love your commentary on all this. I just can't stand though when you mispronounce relic and homage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. like, okay, let's break this down. So yes, relict again, an animal believed to have once existed, thought extinct, but which might have persisted until modern times, hominoid a little different from a hominin, which is essentially the modern parlance, you know, for what we once kind of called hominid. But mm -hmm. a hominoid is essentially something resembling one of the anthropoid apes, which would include humans, our uh, great ape cousins, right? And also now believed to be extinct archaic hominin types like Neanderthal and Denisovans. So mm. something essentially that's human shaped, something that shouldn't be alive today, that we would expect to have only seen tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of years ago, but which still exists today. My contention is 
that at very least some data in the historical record does support this hypothesis, the mm -hmm. recent survival of relict hominoids. That's what we're talking about. I think okay. we've got all the nomenclature out of the way, guys. Yeah, we have. We, and I'll try not to derail you again. It's important because I think, you know, a lot of us will hear these terms and and you kind of think maybe you're not paying attention. Certainly, you know, we hear so many terms uh, in the course of our day. But knowing the definitions of them really puts it in context because these are the nuts and bolts of what we're talking about. And uh, to understand those, then you get a bit, it really helps out your larger understanding of these topics. Well, it certainly does. And again, this is the other thing. I have to also, you know, mention my friend and colleague, Matt Pruitt. He's of the North American Wood Ape Conservancy. Mm -hmm. He's also done independent research for a number of years, formerly with the Bigfoot Field Research Organization. But I mean, Matt is arguably the most eloquent speaker on this topic. And I love every opportunity I have to get together and talk with him. And something that, that Matt's really worked hard for years to try and do, and which I hope to try and do, is to raise the bar on the discussion to use not just big words just to sound, you know, science-y. Really, the intention is to try and phrase what we're discussing in the proper context, in the proper terminological context, place in the proper historical context, so that we are having an intelligent, informed discussion about this possibility, rather than, I seen him, he was out there, and he's standing. <laughs> yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. Because that's yeah. been the argument that's been waged against Sasquatchery, really, for decades, you know, and in fact, the same applies to UFOs. Yeah, I remember the late Stephen Hawking, uh, you know, respect him, though I did, talking about, you know, if UFOs represented aliens, which we can immediately rule out, he would say, <laughs> you know, why would they come to Earth and only present themselves before cranks and weirdos? Well, right. if we raise the bar on the discussion and we use this kind of terminology that we phrase this in proper anthropological and zoological and biological terminology mm – -hmm. And, you know, put it in the right historical context, this may actually help us, yeah. uh, you know, win some points in terms of furthering the idea that, okay, this isn't just, you know, something that crazy people claim to see, liars and hunters, right? right? We harp on this quite a bit, but I think it's relevant and uh, accurate. It's that academic hubris you see. These yeah. stories are so much more about, or just as much about, the human beings that study them as the things that we're studying, in that so much of it, as you brought up in your introduction, just how much has to do with personality. And you can look at what's being taken serious and what isn't by the person and the ad hominem attack on their character, as you said, because of the things that they're willing to consider. So you look at Jeff Meldrum or Grover Krantz in the day, uh, who started off as a skeptic on all of this and later turned convinced. I believe it was the dermal ridges on a print that he found, which is like, wow, either somebody is going to just unbelievable technical capability to fake this stuff for whatever reason, or this is real, and it started to change his mind. And it's also a little bit cultural. You see the Russian scientists in locomotion and their biologists taking it seriously, especially around the PGF, and they realize like, boy, you know what? You Americans are not going to be satisfied till you've killed one, and it's in your right. office. No film, no print, not even hair, anything else. Maybe some scat nowadays because there could be DNA with it. But even then, it's possibly inconclusive that you're not going to have one until you, you have one in a cage or you're dissecting it. And then it's going to even cause a, a, a ruckus. Forrest and Scott, thank you for supporting their sponsors. I'm Tucker. Now back to the show. You know, and again, I recognize the necessity for collecting a specimen that can be, you know, that can serve as the type specimen and can be thereafter referenced. 
it also really troubles me the idea that we've got to go and shoot and kill one. I mean, I, I guess there's a humanitarian kind of vein that that I tend to operate in. Call me unrealistic. I don't like the idea that we're going out there and killing something that we don't even know what the possible population is or if they exist right now. And if they are so, you know, infrequently seen, I mean, I can't help but think that there's a a very small population, you know, barely above capable of maintaining a breeding population, probably in decline under pressure from both the expansion Mm -hmm. of humans and, of course, deforestation, possibly climate change is a factor. All of these issues, which, of course, are also not only making life hard for them, but, I mean, they're already critically endangered and retreating further and further away from humanity, which is going to make them even more difficult to be discovered. So my greatest fear, really, with regard to Sasquatch is if they exist, and I maintain some reservations, I'm not really all in on the idea. I know I've convinced myself. I am trying to find evidence that supports that hypothesis, but I don't believe before I've found enough evidence, right? But my worry is that one day maybe we will find unequivocal evidence. It may not be a body. Maybe it'll be the discovery of fossil remains that can be radiocarbon dated, you know, organic materials in close proximity, you know, will allow us to date this and it can be found to be, you know, a few thousand years old, or maybe we will find remains that are unequivocally recent, but nonetheless remains and we won't find any further evidence beyond that. And we'll say, you know, there was a creature, but we couldn't prove it. We couldn't get around our own hubris, like you say, Forrest. Yeah to have taken this seriously. And I I think that this is a tremendous loss potential right here, because again, with the questions we have about our evolutionary past and our heritage and what it really means to be human, it should be incumbent upon us if there's any possibility that there is something like us that exists on this world today, or maybe Mm -hmm. more than one variety in terms of species. It's incumbent upon us to try and study these because the study of something like us that may be at a different evolutionary stage, but similar to that, that our ancestors went through, this could tell us incredible things about human evolution and our past and what it really means to be human. And I think that's a prospect that scares a lot of people, but I think most scientists, if faced with that possibility, would rather know than to not know. And my fear is that we will continue to allow hubris to impede our progress on this subject. And at some point, it's going to be too late. So really, I mean, it's a proactive effort on my part to try and analyze, assess, determine if there is indeed a there there. And and then we have to establish the biological reality. If there is one to be established, we need to discover these creatures if they exist before they are gone. Plain Uh, and simple. Absolutely. I I always love this phrase, too, which uh, was brought up by, in a weirdly remotely, uh, talk about remote uh, connected uh, topic, uh, remote viewing with Russell Targ in that, you can present the data and his peers, the fellow scientists and physicists, they don't mind the data. It's not the raw data that they mind. It's the implications of that data. And like you said, you could present something, well, here's some DNA that doesn't really line up with anything. What does this mean? Here's some. Uh, here's something completely new that we haven't considered. What are the implications of that? What else is lurking out there that we may not have considered or don't uh, give any credence to? Because it's just to way out there for scientific mainstream study. Oh, certainly. I would say you don't know until you go looking for it. But also, and people always laugh when I say this, there were no Denisovans until there were Denisovans. Right. That, exactly. Yes, right. <laughs> right. What I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and I get a variety of responses to saying that, but I mean, my whole contention is there was no Homo floresiensis until there was yeah. Homo floresiensis. And again, this is what's fascinating to me about Myra Shackley's research in the 1980s, Prior to the discovery of the Denisovans, or Denisovans, you know, as they Mm -hmm. might say in Mm -hmm. Europe, again, I've heard both pronunciations, they both equally appear to, you know, see usage. 
So she was working with what was known in the anthropological record and the fossil record at the time. But now we have a number of other species that are qualifiers for these relic hominoids. So I would take it a step further and say, are there possibly those which we haven't found in the fossil record at all, which might account for some of these descriptions? So with that said, I think maybe the best place to start in truth is one of the earliest and most widely recognized actual forms of written narrative that we actually have in the historical record, the Epic of Gilgamesh. Mm -hmm. And I would hesitate to call Enkidu, the wild man that rep that's represented in this story, a Sasquatch. But I think it's important if we're going to have this discussion to recognize mm -hmm. that one of the earliest, actually the earliest recognized epic narrative in written form, uh, not just an oral tradition, one that was actually committed to early writing. This actually has a wild man. And so, so mm -hmm. back to Myra Shackley's point about the ubiquitousness of the wild man throughout history, it goes all the way back to some of our earliest known writings. And I'll refer to some uh, notes I have here. Of course, as we begin the epic of Gilgamesh, the people of Uruk are kind of being oppressed, right? It doesn't really exactly uh, elaborate on what the state of oppression is, but they appeal to the god Anu for aid. And what ends up happening is Anu hears their grievances and Aruru is thereafter summoned to create what's called a Zikru. Now, there's some you know, division on what exactly this means. Generally, Zikru, that word is, is translated to mean either reply or response. So we could call this the reply of Aruru. But in essence, what happens is that, that the Zikru would be equal to Gilgamesh's stormy heart. In other words, we're going to create something that can match the warrior king Gilgamesh. And so from a pinch of clay, Aruru tosses this clay into the wilderness, and out of it is born the wild man Enkidu. We, of course, can recognize certain similarities, of course, in the Christian Bible of the idea that, you know, from clay, you know, man is created. The Hebrew book of formation also contains passages talking about the creation of a man from mud, i.e. a mm. golem. So, mm. you know, you see certain aspects of these traditions uh, mirrored here. But I'll share a uh, passage from the translation that I've worked with on this. And again, again, keep in mind, at times I will refer to other translations of some of the historical texts that we'll look at. In the wilderness, she created valiant Enkidu, born of silence, endowed with strength by Ninurta. His whole body was shaggy with hair. <laughs> He had a full head of hair like a woman. His locks billowed in profusion like Ashnan. He knew neither people nor settled living, but wore a garment like Sumukan. He ate grasses with the gazelles and jostled at the watering hole with the animals, as with animals his thirst was slaked with mere water. Now, Sumukan, of course, was the god of wild animals, uh, and this is intended by most scholars, they believe this intends to convey that he wore animal skins like the god Sumukan was often uh, depicted as wearing. But nonetheless, again, this description is quite interesting to me because he is described as being covered with shaggy hair. Right. Mm -hmm. Further passages describe how when people approach the watering hole and see him, they are frightened by his appearance. Now, if he were just a guy, one would imagine they wouldn't probably be very frightened by Enkidu. But they are very frightened by him. And of course, as we know, the story goes that uh, he is introduced to a woman who tames him in seven days, and then he's brought to civilization and he meets with Gilgamesh. And at first it's a clash, but they become, of course, the best of friends. Right. Fascinating to me that, again, this epic known to modern scholars to have probably been written between maybe 1300 and 1000 BC. 
And it's describing, again, what we could really call, if not a Sasquatch, and I would hesitate to say that that's what this is. This, of course, this epic tale incorporates a, a number of different elements that are very fantastic, right? And so with all the elements, you know, go, swimming to the bottom of the sea, going to visit, you know, a man who can live forever, up Napishtam, mm-hmm. to say that, well, one of these represents something real and everything else is, of course, just myth and folklore. Right, Obviously, right. we have a problem there. So my intention here is not to say this is Sasquatch. It is to say the wild man archetype has been with us since some of our earliest instances of writing, okay? Yeah. We certainly see that with, with Gilgamesh, but now to come over to a more what we might deem a more historical account. Fast forward to around 475 BC, and among some of the earliest records that I have found, uh, which appear to convey a historical account of a wild man, this one I found in what's called the Fangjianzi, or the Annals of Fangjian County. And the account here uh, relates a occurrence that would have transpired during the what was known as China's Warring States period, a time of military reform that began around 475 BC. And according to Han Dynasty historian Sima Qin, this is, of course, a historical historian, and lasting probably up until about 256 BC, the account that I found describes a savage that was brought before the emperor of the Western Zhao as a tribute. And the savage, as it was described, was apparently about three meters tall, so yet again, mm-hmm. Forrest, if you recall, you're describing yeah. a nine-foot-tall Eurasian ape species, Gigantopithecus. Well, a nine-foot savage covered in hair was brought before the emperor of Western Zhao as a tribute. They said it had a very hairy body. It had a per- peculiar wide mouth. And that also mm. is a feature that throughout time we continue to see in descriptions of even modern Sasquatch in North America. Right. What's really interesting is that Fangjian, okay, and I'm probably butchering some of the pronunciation of these of these names, so please, especially Just Chinese send the emails to us, folks. We're, we're used to them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but Fangjian, or simply Fang County, is, mm-hmm. and I can see why they would maybe uh, abbreviate that, it lies in the northwestern corner of Hubei province. And this is a very forested, uh, a lot of stony, you know, cliffs and caves in this region. There is an actual cave in Hubei province to this day, which is called Yeren Cave, Yeren, Wild Man Cave. Oh. <laughs> yeah. And of course, Yeren or Yeren is the term that we use today for the Chinese wild man or Sasquatch equivalent mm. in that part of the world. So it's interesting to me that going all the way back to the Warring States period, we have accounts of alleged capture of these wild people, these Yeren in China. Now, In 1976, a commune party secretary, yet again in that very same part of the world, observed what he described as a wild man in the region. He said it fled carrying a small pig. The following year, another woman from Fangjian also reported that she observed such a creature while it ate bamboo shoots. Now, again, what I'm pointing out here is that here's the description in history. Here is the existing cultural mythos involving the Yeren and Mm -hmm. caves Mm -hmm. and things named after them. And then modern sightings, as recently as 1976 and 1977, probably there are some even more recent than that, where people have said that they've seen these things. And I believe that the reports from the 1970s were actually uh, carried in the New York Times, no less. So those are some of the earliest ones. But now let's skip ahead to the 300s BC. We have, of course, roughly coinciding with the states of Qin and Yan defecting as independent uh, kingdoms, a statesman and poet, and he's fairly significant, Ku Yan of the state of Chu. He also had been aware of what were known as mountain ogres. And he actually wrote about these in his poetry from this period, these mountain ogres or these savages, which he wrote about from time to time. Now, 
a lot of historians have pointed out the fact that, I mean, there's this period where we don't hear about wild men any longer up through, you know, the Middle Ages. And if they existed, even though we have, of course, the appearances of wild men, woodwoses or vudavasa, as they're sometimes called, in the heraldry of the Middle Ages, wild men, in other words, were mm. often depicted in art, but there were very few historical accounts that seemed to describe them. Not the same in China. Again, here we have from the 12th century in China, another case that I would like to bring to the table here. In the Yu Ming Lu, or the records of the hidden and visible worlds, this attributed to the author Liu Yiking. He was a compiler of stories who visited China in the early 4th century. I came upon a translation by Xinjung Zhang, where he takes the Yu Ming Lu and he translates this very interesting account, which would have probably occurred between maybe the 200s and the uh, late 500s. Liu Yiking reports that there are things like people in the mountains and rocks in Dongchang County, which are covered in hair and wear no clothing. These creatures communicate with whistling and attack humans by throwing rocks at them. Now, you two, I'm sure, are familiar with the indigenous American traditions about whistling. Right. Yep. Rock throwing, right? Yeah. Never heard of it. Woodnox, it's crazy. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Our, our, our uh, of course, uh, American version is uh, they love Snickers bars. So yeah. <laughs> probably there's a Chinese equivalent of, of leaving treats for them or offerings. Yeah. And the rock throwing is, do. it's so ubiquitous, by the way. It's just ubiquitous yeah. in the, all the encounters that seem like they have some merit to them. Well, certainly. And, you know, I mean, among the uh, Iroquois, there are traditions of what they call the stone giants. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, we also mm-hmm. hear about stone giants in, or the stone man in West Virginia. I have wondered sometimes, I mean, there are different interpretations of what the reason for that may be, but one interpretation, and this is one of many, has at least been on my mind for some time, and that may be that they they may have been associated with the actual act of throwing stones. Some say that may actually have to do something with their appearance, perhaps matted fur, perhaps rolling in sand and actually having, you know, a kind of matted stony appearance. I think uh, Lauren Coleman, who has done, Mm -hmm. again, incredible work for decades in this regard, that had been one of the extrapolations of that idea that he had presented. But again, one other interpretation might be that they throw rocks, the stone man. Yeah. Now, I want to actually share the translation from uh, Lee Yi King's original passage here, because you talked about the treat, right? Mm-hmm. Leaving a Snickers bar. First. Right, right. Well, maybe uh, in China, we should leave lobsters or other <laughs> kinds of crustaceans, as you're about to hear. In the mountains of Dongchang County, there are such creatures. Their figures are like those of human beings. Their length, presumably their height, four or five feet. So not that tall necessarily. Their bodies are naked. Their hair, four or five inches long, hangs down loosely. They often live among the stones in the towering mountains. They have a husky voice but cannot speak, though they can summon each other by whistles. Mm. They often conceal themselves in the dark so cannot be seen frequently. Once some people went to cut wood and camped in the mountains. After they went to sleep at night, the creatures appeared. Holding their children in their arms, they started a fire with stones, caught lobsters and crabs from the ravine, approached the fire beside the people, and roasted the lobsters to feed their children. Now, I'll just interject here that this translation, again, I actually did a lot of my own translations in some cases. This one I did not do. This was a translation by Xinjun Zhang, mm-hmm. who's a modern translator and collector of these accounts from early writings like those of, of the Li Yi King. But I, I wonder about that translation and, and whether or not the creatures came and made the fire 
or indeed when the campers in this case went to sleep, the creatures came and stood and warmed themselves by the fire. And I'll offer some justification for why I've wondered about that point here in a moment, but we continue with the uh, the translation. So they bring lobsters and put them on rocks by the fire while the people are sleeping and roast these to feed their children. Well, one man had not fallen asleep. He secretly awoke the others and told them what had happened, and consequently they stood up together and made a surprise attack against the creatures. Mm. Thus the creatures ran away and left their children there. Their voices resembled the cries of human beings. The creatures urged a group of their fellows, male and female, to hit the people with stones. They approached the people, got their children, and stopped attacking. So basically, they threw rocks until everybody backed away, grabbed their kids, and ran. Now, I got to add that uh, I came across an account from Russian hominologist, one of the Russian researchers mm-hmm. you guys mentioned, Dmitry Bayanov. Mm-hmm. And he talked about the uh, traditions in the Slavic countries of the Leshi, another variety of a kind of folkloric wild man. Mm-hmm. But listen to this account that D- Dmitry Bayanov gives us. The Leshy were said to approach campfires built by lumberjacks or hunters in order to warm themselves in cold winter. And it was said that they turned away their muzzles, apparently because of the bright light. They also took care that flying sparks did not touch their hair. So here we have, yet again, a little further to the west and north, another account of a tradition involving wild men. This one, again, the modern folklorist would unequivocally place in the folklore camp. But the Leshy, it was said, would approach fires, stand with their backs to the fires, and warm the fires that lumberjacks built. Yeah. So, again, I can't help but wonder if the story we have from Dongchang County, much earlier, of course, is describing the creatures approaching a fire that campers had already built. Right. You know, incidentally, the account that was provided was that these people had gone up into the forests, I believe, indeed, to harvest lumber. So something about lumberjacks attracting Sasquatch-like creatures, huh? (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, because you have to wonder, as I always do, how advanced are they if they are intelligent? And that is almost a gut feeling. Of course, there's, there's no way to measure it as we do or try to with the intelligence of animals problem solving, their tools and things of that nature as we did with primitive humans and, uh, you know, the flint tools that they could make and and the progress of, of how they took care of themselves. Then you wonder if they are intelligent to a degree, they are not to the point where they can make fire. They enjoy it. They know what it is, but they're waiting on a slightly more technologically advanced version of themselves to make the fire that they will then enjoy because right. lobsters better cooked, but they also, they're not like wild animals in the sense that they just kind of react. They can plan, they have tactics. You know, one of my favorite stories, of course, I'm sure you're going to get to is the incident at eight Canyon where you talk about throwing stones. That's the one where it got pretty violent with the miners in the cabin. I think seven of them where they're lobbing massive boulders now, so much so that it, it was breaking the log-sized timbers of the roof and the sides of the cabin that they were in that these guys left. And of course, what I always enjoy was the explanation was, um, well, it was a Boy Scout troop that were throwing pebbles because that's their tradition. And the pebbles on the, the roof of the cabin scared these really tough, burly uh, minor types. And they all fled and would never go back. So, but yeah, it, it's, uh, well, what do, you, what do you have at your disposal? as missiles, rocks, and uh, and if you believe some of these YouTube clips, they're throwing small trees at people too and uprooting them or planting them upside down as a marker. But they all feature incredible strength and a lot of intelligence, but they're still a few steps behind us, probably thankfully. Right. Yeah, that would seem to be the case. And you know, again, we can look at cases like, uh, you know, the instance that we just, uh, you know, reviewed there from China. Mm-hmm. Certain aspects of it, of course, maybe are worthy of being taken with a grain of salt. 
This could have been an account that was, you know, based on a, a historical knowledge of such creatures, but that was, you know, maybe, you know, went through a sort of process of folklorization. I mean, often you see this kind of thing. I mean, people are like, well, you know, look, if we're looking for hardline evidence of of relict hominoids, as you propose, Hanks, then we can't be saying that, well, you know, some of these early accounts are going to have elements of folklore kind of padded onto them. But I would say you should expect that. And let me give you an example why. We know, for example, as a result of a recent preliminary assessment that was provided by the uh, UAP task force under the cognizance of the Department of the Navy, we know that the U.S. government has taken interest in unidentified aerial potential threats, although they don't appear to be overtly threatening. But again, they're assessing the threat potential of UAP or unidentified aerial phenomena. For decades, it seems that unidentified aerial phenomena have been observed in our skies, at very least since 1947. I would contend, again, having looked somewhat at the proto-history of this topic, that these things have been seen since well before the end of the Second World War in the 1947, you know, kind of shockwave that took hold in our culture after Kenneth Arnold's sighting over Mount Rainier. But what we have seen, in addition to sightings of objects and knowing very little else about these objects than the fact that they are sighted from time to time, that they behave very strangely, and that they seem to be able to do things that our current understanding of aviation, aerospace, and physics even can do. What we know apart from that is very little. And the human tendency in the absence of evidence to craft narratives around things in order Mm. to fill in the blanks, I mean, is all too prevalent. We don't even have to go into a, a far out topic like the idea of what UFOs are and, you know, whether they have exotic origins to find examples of this. I mean, you could talk to anybody who observes a car accident or, you know, a a, a shoplifting incident. Every person you talk to is going to have a slightly different version of the story. Mm. And after two weeks, if you go back and talk to the primary witness, they'll tell you things that, you know, I just remembered that when we were there, and I I, I didn't tell you this the first time, the human memory has, and, and in fact, psychological studies show that the human memory not only has a tendency to, it often does update. Mm-hmm. And we tend to add layers of memory onto right. things that were actually observed. With UFOs, we now have this mythos of crash wreckage retrievals and the back engineering and reverse engineering of captured flying saucers, you know, treaties between the Eisenhower administration and the UFOs and the extraterrestrials engaging in, you know, widespread abduction of as much as, you know, 10 to 20 percent of the U.S. population or the world populations for that matter, secret battles beneath Dolce in, you know, New Mexico and all this, this sort of stuff. My point is, we know that there are objects, okay? We know that our government looks at them And humans for decades have piled stories onto that, trying to interpret it and trying to kind of rationalize it and trying to understand why are they here? What are they doing? What are their intentions? Right. And it often ends up sounding a lot more like something from a Robert Heinlein or even a Stephen King novel than it does what it might actually represent. So the idea that certain mythological elements would be, you know, piled onto some of these accounts from, again, going all the way back to you know, maybe the 400s AD or even the 400s BC in China, you could expect that, right? especially after hundreds of years, since with UFOs, it's only taken decades for us to do the same thing. Right. Now, I, I want to bring up an interesting point because it is uh, connected to that in that I, we had talked about Mark Evans, who has been studying the Yeti and looking into that and trying to combine the folklore aspect of it with actual scientific findings, specifically DNA. And I I hope to talk about him in a little bit. But one thing that is interesting in that if you look at Homo florensiensis, I put too many uh, consonants in there, but uh, (laughs) it's uh, the the little people from the island of Flores, right? Mm -hmm. There have been folkloric tales from 
the native elders for generations about little people that some have seen. So when you have uh, Homo floresiensis, and it hasn't been around for a very long time, but there are still surviving stories about them, and the facts may be off, but just the fact that they believe that little people existed, and we're talking, yeah, three to four feet tall, and then there's a gap of them existing, but the stories and folklore still existing. But nobody taking that seriously because they think it's just folklore and, and tall tales handed down that you tell your children. But it turns out there's some credence to that, to these local stories. And then you you should take that and look at the rest of uh, hominid cryptozoology in a more serious light with less skepticism. With regard to Homo floresiensis, it wasn't lost on even some hardline anthropologists that there are existing traditions of, you know, again, what we would, uh, in the West, we generally know this as the name uh, Orang Pendek. Yes. The little man of the forest. But, you know, indigenous names for that are, are simpler. They just call it Gugu, which I find really interesting because Gugu, again, is described as being a bipedal, small, ape-like creature, which is essentially like what the fossil representations of, of Homo floresiensis appear to uh, represent. But you also have, in addition to Gugu, you have nearby, you have ideas, uh, for instance, uh, the Ebugogo, mm -hmm. uh, which I believe is maybe, I think that that's going to be on the island of uh, Arthur C. Clarke. Where did he have a home? Sri Lanka, right? I, so, yeah, yeah. I think so, yeah. So I believe that the term there for their traditional wild man is ebugogo. Then in Africa, there's the agogwe. So etymologically, I'm fascinated with the fact that there are similarities. Mm. But that's not all. Traditions, okay, on the island of Flores with regard to the gugu or the orang pendek, mm -hmm. describe the creatures all being rushed into a cave and they set fire to the cave and they were all killed inside the cave. The exact same tradition exists in Sri Lanka with regard to their variety of wild man. In fact, in North America, the exact same tradition exists with regard to Lovelock Cave in Nevada I, about the <laughs> destruction of the Sitikot. And David Weatherly and I have had coffee numerous times and talked about this because David has gone up and down the Pacific coast and found additional references to cultural traditions of hominins being yeah. killed in the cave. Now, again, the problem with this is that this is clearly what folklorists would recognize as a cultural myth. Right. But again, it's interesting to me, just like flood myths or anything else, where does this tradition stem from? The idea of these human-like creatures being chased into a cave, a fire set at the cave, and they are killed. And again, the similarities in the name. I mean, is it all entirely just folklore? And is, is this the death nail for the idea? Again, the hardline anthropologists would say maybe not, since we have fossil record of these Homo floresiensis, these hobbits, mm -hmm which are not unlike what are described even today by some of the islanders. So one of the interpretations is that if these creatures don't still exist, maybe an actual cultural memory of right. Homo floresiensis yeah. has endured. I would like to think, of course, especially in light of the fact that there are some reports, and again, in terms of the historical discussion we're having, Marginoli in, the, I believe, the, uh, the 16th century gave us accounts of, you know, little hairy people in this part mm -hmm. of the world, which some people think might have been goo-goo. Others are a little more hesitant and worried that these might be travelers' tales, and they're just describing some of the indigenous residents. Right. So yet again, we've got to be careful with these things. But again, it is notable that there were historical accounts, too, that described goo-goo, yeah. as well as the modern idea of Orang Pendek. Yeah. Now, if you want to extrapolate that to larger myths that are pervasive, and speaking of Gilgamesh and the Old Testament idea of a of a large global flood, 
even extending into, uh, Scott could correct me here, but uh, we studied it with the Pima Native Americans in the American Southwest having a flood origin story where a, a young couple takes animals and, and makes a giant tar ball that they survive it, right. like a raft or an ark. And now there, I believe there's evidence, some archaeologists are finding for the evidence that Gilgamesh may have existed in that the legend was, I believe when he died, he was buried in the, they diverted the river. He was buried there, put the river back over him so he would not be disturbed. Now they think they may have found a burial of some, one of the ancient uh, Sumerian kings, at least, or, or somebody from the king's list that was very important because it was a lot of effort to do that that Gilgamesh may have existed. And also evidence now with uh, archaeology that uh, and, and geology that a great flood most likely took place. And then we have legends of that. So is it something that, that's happening that ancient peoples remembered and have passed down through oral tradition and then eventually uh, written tradition? Or it seems almost more woo-woo to say that uh, they've all just, we've all had a collective memory that never of something that never occurred, and it just ends up in our in our folklore and and tales. But somehow it's pervasive around the world with all peoples and most cultures. Right. It, it just sounds like something happened, and it, and uh, it resonates with everything we talked about. Gobekli Tepe, and it may have been partly due to a comet that struck and was devastating. And the peoples from then on said, "Well, we we better get in line here and start praying to the gods and." have some reverence or this is going to happen again because they remembered what how devastating it was last time and then you you talk to people who say well that's you know there's no proof of that that can't be you know there's no evidence of, of a large comet passing by and causing damage but there are chinese records of it from maybe thousands of years before it was written then and they had memories of it so there's too many connections i think to to just dismiss it as common coincidence, global folklore, that somehow we just come up with the same stories. Certainly. I agree. You know, we could have a long conversation about the evidence of, you know, cataclysmic floods at the end of the terminal Pleistocene uh, and the relationship with comets, because, you know, I've actually done some work at archaeological sites mm -hmm. with the actual academic excavators who are probing that mystery and collecting proxy data in support of the idea of a younger Dryas impact hypothesis. Mm -hmm. Yeah in the form of rare earth metals that are found in abundance in the stratigraphy that coincides with that period in history. But that is, unfortunately, guys, a conversation for another Indeed. time. <laughs> oh, you also took a lot of flack. I remember there was a big dust up uh, that you handled with such a plum and, and uh, gentlemanly courtesy about the giants at Lovelock. And uh, I don't know if we want to mention them by name, but another uh, skeptical writer, you could say, and it was about some details that they didn't agree with because, of course, nothing that unusual could possibly be real. I'm sympathetic to the skeptics who uh, see a couple of problems with the gross misinterpretation of these, you know, and right. the attempt to try and kind of pile them all together and say it's all the same thing. You know, one is, of course, often a, a failure to understand or a simple overlooking of the indigenous American interpretations mm. of these sites and traditions, which really must remain paramount if we're going to really frame this in the proper context. And then, of course, also is, there's the pseudo-archaeological aspect of this, where unfortunately a lot of people are trying to find, and their intention is simply to go out there and find evidence of things that smacks in the face of modern contemporary archaeology. Now, what's really confusing for a lot of people is I maintain an interest in all these sorts of things, but I also work with serious archaeologists, and I don't advocate pseudo-archaeological theories. 
And again, the archaeologists that I work with are, again, very strict by the books, well-educated mm-hmm. uh, and, and frankly renowned in their communities for the you know, work that they do. And nonetheless, what we also are beginning to see is that certain ideas that were once deemed fringe, i.e., for instance, the idea of an impact hypothesis in association Mm. with that cool reversal period called the Younger Dryas toward the end of the Pleistocene, we're actually seeing more and more scientific verification for this. And I've spoken with, for instance, a friend of mine, Dr. Chris Moore from the University of South Carolina Education System, who has done incredible Work. He's a geoarchaeologist, but he has, you know, conducted numerous field seasons of excavations at sites like White Pond in South Carolina. Andrew M. T. Moore, the immediate past honorary president of the Archaeological Society of America, who I've spoken with and who also conducted uh, excavations for years at sites in Syria like Abu Huraira. Mm. Again, I could go down the list of ongoing studies that have recovered proxy data in support of the idea of an impact that occurred around this time. But again, having spoken with all these archaeologists, and these again not there seems to be a growing body of evidence, and at this point, maybe even an abundance of it, that points to an idea that we would have initially deemed unlikely. But with further scientific verification, we're now having to say, you know, we need to not only entertain this possibility, we need to actually say that this is a very likely scenario. So again, not to derail the conversation here, but I mean, we can talk all night about archaeology too. And again, something that I think that is often missed by many skeptics is that, you know, sometimes an idea may seem unlikely, but the fact that it seems unlikely does not inherently make it unlikely. And sometimes good scientific evidence in support of seemingly unlikely ideas later comes back around, and then you have something like general relativity. Right. right. Now, last anecdote, last anecdote here. <laughs> Einstein was in- incredibly unpopular with his theory when it first came on the scene. And there were 100 philosophers and mathematicians and physicists that gathered together and they signed a petition showing their distaste for relativity. And Einstein famously quipped, and I'll paraphrase here, if I'm wrong, do the math. Mm-hmm. But signing a petition, I don't care if there's 100 <laughs> or 1,000 of you, that yeah. ain't going to change the math. Right. Again, the justification for his theory, I mean, we're still seeing with, again, the discovery and the con- confirmation of gravity waves. Let's go down the list of all the ways that relativity continues to be verified. So again, many times throughout history, novel ideas seemed unlikely at first, but they have lasted the test of time. And some of those we're discussing that may also prove in the eventual sense to do the same, if we're lucky. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I'm Tarantula Glam, aka Haley Martin, and this is Astonishing Legends. Let's get back to the show. First, I got to come back over to Gilgamesh and the archaeological justification for the existence of Gilgamesh. Again, there is some archaeological support for the actual existence of this this mm-hmm. king. Okay, and another area of history where we have a you know a, a mythic tale, you know, an epic legend for which there is some archaeological, some archaeological justification is Beowulf. Mm -hmm. And here again, much like the story of Gilgamesh, we have another, you know, example of of epic literature from early times that also features essentially a wild man, although there's a little bit of debate about what exactly the uh, the nemesis of Beowulf, Grendel, actually was. But you know, let's just go right to Seamus Haney's translation here. He'll give us his translation from the Anglo-Saxon, which will help us kind of paint the picture. And to quote Haney's translation, Grendel had dwelt for a time in misery among the banished monsters, Cain's clan whom the creator had outlawed and condemned as outcasts. And for the killing of Abel, the eternal Lord had exacted a price. Cain got no good from committing that murder. 
because the Almighty made him anathema. And out of the curse of his exile, there sprang ogres and elves and evil <laughs> phantoms and the giants too who strove with God time and time until he gave them their reward. Now, of course, Haney's translation is fascinating for a number of reasons. And like many, it makes an unequivocal association between Cain, mm -hmm. the biblical Cain, and Grendel. And there are some fascinating scientific papers about this that I've read, which, you know, actually suppose that maybe some of the inspiration for the epic of, of Beowulf had actually been drawn from something like the Book of Enoch. And that mm. the scribes, you know, who had recorded the story, it may have been an earlier cultural story, but that the scribes who recorded it may have been familiar with something like yeah. the Book of Enoch and, and that certain themes that are recognized in both do appear. But now I want to come around to another a lengthier description that's given, because actually in the story, after the battle, the epic clash between Beowulf and Grendel, and of course Grendel's arm is literally ripped from his body and he runs off screaming and apparently, you know, bleeds to death and dies, much to the angering of his mother. Right. But shortly after the death of Grendel, we have the following passage, again referring to Haney's uh, translation here, where he writes, I have heard it said by my people in Hull, counselors who live in the upland country, that they have seen two such creatures prowling the moors, huge marauders from some other world. One of these things, as far as anyone ever can discern, looks like a woman. And this is the famous, and I love this, this gives me chills, this description of Grendel. The other warped in the shape of a man, moves beyond the pale, bigger than any man, an unnatural birth called Grendel by country people in former days. Haney's translation goes on to say they are fatherless creatures, and their whole ancestry is hidden in a past of demons and ghosts. They dwell apart among wolves on the hills, on windswept crags and treacherous caches, where cold streams pour down the mountain and disappear under mist and moorland. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, isn't it great? It is great. It is great. This comes up quite a bit too. Uh, the Nephilim. Yeah, and then you have uh, you have those traditions, and maybe that extends to David and Goliath, uh, mm -hmm. where you have a giant, a a warrior, but essentially a wild beast or donkey of a man, and uh, he just happens to be huge, but possibly something extant was existing with him was somebody that is notably, it's not just a tall guy. I mean, you could say people in the ancient world were a lot shorter. Uh, somebody who is uh, maybe even seven feet tall would be, would stand out as they do now. But somebody who's 10 to 15, 18 feet tall and tales of a bed of one king. And I I'm, can't remember his name now, but uh, his bed was reported to be 20 feet long. You have those tales permeating. And then that translating into, uh, if you believe that, uh, was it uh, L.A. Lazuli? I don't know if you're uh, familiar with him, but he does a lot of studies in, in, in kind of a biblical angle on these with strange beasts, giants, things appearing from the Bible, and a, and a tale from a veteran from the Iraq War who claims that they cornered a large wild man giant about 14 to you know, 15, 18 feet tall that uh, killed one of their men while out on patrol and was eventually killed by them and carted off in large cargo nets under a Chinook helicopter. So those kinds of legends exist to this day of giant wild men, but in varying forms of visage, some more human-like, some more or beast and shaggy, some somewhere in between. And, and certainly that's the impression I get was that some tales that you get from people who observe, observed them, they're much more animal-like than human, but human enough 
uh, with some of the reports. There was one report that was kind of famous, I think from the 60s or 70s, where a guy confronted a what he thought was a female uh, Sasquatch of some type, and he had his rifle with him. He was out hunting, but he said just the impression he got was he was too human to shoot at. William Rowe. That's oh, yeah. it. That's yeah. it. Yeah. It's a very important case in terms of establishing the historical delineations yeah. here. But yeah, to your point, William Rose said, again, he, he thought, is this a person in a suit? What yeah. is this thing? If I shot it, I might have been committing murder. Yeah. What's fascinating to me is that you have not just a linear evolution of both physical beings and also an evolution of folklore as it transmogrifies throughout the ages and it's the tales are handed down and some things stick and some things change. And then it boils, you're in a crucible of, of the same story elements and tropes and, and uh, the same character ideas. But you have simultaneous evolution and maybe de-evolution and stagnation of the same types of biological creatures. And that you have human-looking giants, you have ape-like giants, you have human-looking little people, you have ape-like small people that are more, more like primitive humans. It's just a smorgasbord of, of strangeness that uh, has always been reported and possibly still exists. Certainly. When we get around to uh, the William Rowe encounter, we're going to get to that point, too, mm-hmm. here shortly. Uh, you know, we, we can point out that sometimes those lines between the human-like giants and the, and the ape-like or the monsters, you know, they aren't necessarily so well-defined. And there's been a lot of confusion about those points. Now, you know, coming back to Beowulf, you know, to your point. My contention would be that Beowulf is a mythology. It's a story. You know, it's a legend, but that perhaps it borrowed, like some of the other mythological instances that we've already discussed, from actual happenings, from Mm. actual knowledge, from actual events. There have been interpretations of Grendel as having simply been a berserker, you know, that he was essentially like a barbarian, Mm. just a person. But then again, uh, there are other aspects of the story that don't seem to point in that direction. The apparent similarity between Grendel and the idea of Sasquatch as we recognize it today was not lost on John Green, for instance. And I want to share a passage from John Green writing about this in his book, uh, Sasquatch, or on the track of Sasquatch. He wrote, one of the most startling Sasquatch stories is none other than the most important survival of ancient Anglo-Saxon literature, the Beowulf epic. The dragon in Beowulf's final adventure is outside my field of study, but the giant Grendel and his mother sound like Sasquatches. The habit of snatching up the warrior sleeping nearest the door in the great hall whenever they were hungry is somewhat more bloodthirsty than any story the Indians tell, but there are similarities of method nonetheless, and their homes reached by diving under the water checks with a few modern reports of hairy giants diving into lakes. Now, as we can see in this passage, I mean, there are, you know, John Green, in mentioning the dragon, is actually pointing out the more mythical, you know, elements, mm-hmm. I think, of the story that certainly right. make this and place it, you know, firmly in the camp of, you know, a, an epic tale, a story, you know, a, a fiction narrative. But with that in mind, you know, I would like to try and, and you know, and again, you know, I've, I've written even further about this. And in fact, there is a manuscript in, in the works right now. I'm, I'm hoping mm-hmm. to really expound on this, but there's a tremendous amount of research and I've already been working on it for a few years, you know, and who knows how many more it'll take to finish this. But this isn't all just what I do in my spare time. There's, of course, a manuscript I'm working on here. I just cannot wait to read this, by the way. I can't believe you divulged <laughs> yeah. that. I'm so glad yeah. you shared that with our listeners because that's yeah. just awesome. And it's so awesome of you to come on tonight and share some of this research, which you have not published anywhere else. I mean, this is a worldwide Micah Hanks exclusive right here, a lot of this information. So thank you so much, man. 
It certainly is. And again, you know, full disclosure, I mean, I, I wouldn't have it any other way than to share it with you guys, you know, because I have a mutual respect for the research that you guys do and the effort that you put into what you do. And so this is the perfect kind of a format to discuss some of this. But yeah, a lot of this I have never even spoken about elsewhere. And it's it's definitely very special to share it with yeah. you guys. Awesome. In my other writings about it, in my future writings about it, you know, I hope to also get into some of Tolkien's analysis mm. of Beowulf and, uh, you know, look at what he had to say about it. But for the purposes of the conversation, you know, let's say fit to say that there are some interesting aspects of the Beowulf story, and I'll, I'll just try to very briefly cover some of these. For instance, and, and this is another text where if you look at Haney's translation, you have the Anglo-Saxon alongside his translation. And so what I did was I actually did my own translations of certain passages. I'm not good enough at Anglo-Saxon. I don't profess to know any of it, but I mean, with modern <laughs> translation software, I mean, you can do yeah. an awful lot. And so I did certain passages to try and see if there were words and combinations of words that might have alternative meanings. Mm-hmm. What I find is that between the different translations that have been done over the years, uh, for instance, you know, one of them being, of course, Haney, but also we have uh, one that was produced, uh, Hall's translation would be the the other one that I had uh, referenced, and I'll actually reference a passage from that here in a moment to give you an example of what I'm talking about. But there's remarkable consistency between the general terminology in these translations. And so one term that comes up in the Anglo-Saxon that's consistent that has interested me is the term skeadugenga which essentially translates to mean night walker or shadow mover. In other words, they're describing Grendel as being nocturnal. Mm -hmm. Okay, Mm -hmm. so Grendel's larger than a man, but essentially in the shape of a man, maybe a little more beastly in appearance, and he's nocturnal. He's a shadow goer. We also have, for instance, terms that appear or expressions. You know, the passage, again, I'm going to quote here from Hall's translation, Well, first, let's go with Haney. Haney actually wrote a baleful light, flame more than light, as far as describing the creature's eyes. When Grendel actually appears at Herorot, and he's coming in, and he's snatching up people and, you know, devouring the the soldiers, you know, and the men who are sleeping there in the hall, and Grendel's about to, you know, do battle with Beowulf, he describes the eyes glowing in the dim light of the hall. We go now to Haney's, or I'm sorry, to Hall's translation, having heard Haney's, and and Hall translates it as follows, from the eyes of him glimmered a luster unlovely likest to fire. Now, the reason this is interesting to me is because, again, we have reports of Sasquatch-like creatures in modern times that describe this apparent glowing of the eyes. And I'll give you a couple of good examples that Myra Shackley, who we referenced earlier, provides. From the Pamir's expedition in Central Asia in 1980, one member of the expedition, uh, Nina Greneva, describes actually seeing one of these creatures. She said it was as close as 25 meters from her, and she maintained eye contact with the creature, of which she remembered that, quote, the eyes were big and glowing. They were not bright, but glowing. Another account retold by Shackley was provided by a former schoolmistress in Siberia named Marfa Efimonova, who said that she and her father observed a nighttime passage of a tall humanoid through a forested area, of which she said his eyes glowed like two lanterns. Now, again, I would stop short of saying Grendel is a Sasquatch, but it is interesting that he's nocturnal. He has this what appears to be night shine. Some interpret this as being what is recognized in certain species as tapetum lucidum. It's eye shine that is resulting from a thin, reflective, highly reflective Mm -hmm. membrane with the actual eye that when light hits it, you know, if you've seen like a deer or a cat, even alligators, a number of nocturnal species, they they actually reflect light when light hits their eye. 
Some accounts seem to describe Sasquatch-like creatures doing this too, but there's a problem there because the Tapetum lucidum does not exist in primates with the exception of certain lemurs in Madagascar. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it would be hard to say that Sasquatch has developed this, but if they have, if we are actually talking about some sort of a nocturnal primate that has somehow developed Tapetum lucidum, I mean, that would be fascinating in, in and of itself because it seems to point to a very unique adaptation right. where these creatures are almost living exactly the opposite of humans. Talk about a survival mechanism. Let's operate primarily when they don't. Let's come out at yeah. night when, the, when they aren't moving around. Talk about a great way to be able to remain hidden. So, you know, I will say that there are some aspects of the Beowulf story that interest me, and right. those are some of them. Now, if we want to look at a more interesting historical account, let's skip ahead just a little further on down the temporal timeline from the mm. Beowulf narrative. A.D. 1250, we have an Irish wild man account that appears in the King's Mirror. This is a text from around 1250 of Norwegian provenance. I'll skip right ahead to the section of the Marvels of Ireland where we have the following, gents. It once happened in that country, and this, now listen, the narrator actually writes this in the original document, and this seems indeed strange, as if to say, I don't know what to make of this, guys, but here it is, (laughs) that a living creature was caught in the forest as to which no one could say definitely whether it was a man or some other animal, for no one could get a word from it or be sure that it understood human speech. It had the human shape, however, in every detail, both as to hands and to face and to feet. But the entire body was covered with hair, as the beasts are, and down the back it had a long, coarse mane like that of a horse, which fell to both sides and trailed along the ground when the creature stooped in walking. Now, that's a remarkably good account from 1250 of what sounds an awful lot to me like a wild person or a relict hominoid. A scholarly interpretation is that this might be some sort of a strange extrapolation on water monsters believed to exist in Irish folklore, but unless we're talking about a mer-squatch, I mean, I don't see any reference. (laughs) And I actually have found at least one account from the Middle Ages around Orford where a wild man was purportedly captured swimming in in a bay and he was taken captive even tortured. They tried to bring him to the ways of Christ, but he wouldn't <laughs> capitulate from his wild ways. And when they released the wild man, he went right, right back into the water and went and swam away. So it's the closest thing I've found to a medieval myrrh wild man. But <laughs> as far as the Irish counterpart here, I mean, it yeah. just sounds like a very wild person that was captured. Hirsute, you know, and, right. and I, it's, it's an interesting account, if nothing else. <laughs> <laughs> what year was that? Uh, the 1250s? 1250, yeah. Okay, so let me let me throw a curveball at you. Wasn't it uh, Marco Polo who reported meeting dog-headed men? Right. And they were well known by by the Turkmen uh, or the humans that they uh, dealt with that were around them. And, of course, a very detailed description of their appearance and their customs and their behavior. Of course, being much like a wild dog <laughs> trying to behave in your, as if you'd invited one into your house, just kind of crude and bumbling and... Uh, not very refined, but could speak. And then Marco Polo didn't seem to be, uh, everything else's take that he said and reported in his tales were taken to be with a lot of seriousness. And then you get to dog-headed people. And he's like, it seems a little left field, but he didn't seem to be tongue-in-cheek about it. It seemed to be reported with like, a, yeah, dog-head men. That's just what's out there. What do you make of that? You know, it's hard to know. Uh, there are traditions in parts of, uh, you know, especially in the Eastern Orthodox Church mm-hmm. that describe, uh, you know, dog-headed saints and things right. like oh, this. Right, sure, yeah. This one, again, to me, seems to bespeak folklore and mythology. 
and it has a, a, a bit of a flair that seems to you know stem from some of their travelers' tales of earlier times, prior to Marco Polo's times. But I will add to this that um, there are certain similarities I'm reminded of, like you know King Lycan, you know, and some of the Greek mythology that involves men transforming into wolves, right. and hence you know the idea of lycanthropy. So there are certain similarities there. Now, in modern times, we have a sort of a, a cultural counterpart to that, which is the dog man, mm-hmm. right? You know, I have a hard time putting much stock in the idea of there being an actual canine-like <laughs> hominoid yeah. that exists apart from Sasquatch. And I've heard Lauren Coleman and others talk about this, and, and Coleman seems to be spot on with it that, you know, he says, I respect Linda Godfrey, for instance, who has written tremendously mm-hmm. about it. Yeah, she's been on our show. Too, by the way. Yeah, she's been yeah. on our show. But... I, 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 you know, I think she's a fantastic researcher, but to quote or to paraphrase Lauren Coleman talking about uh, Linda's research, you know, he has said, you know, I think that really she's reading into what sound to me like reports of Sasquatch. (laughs) And I would have to (laughs) gravitate more toward uh, Lauren's interpretation that, you know, maybe the dog man idea is kind of a mythological, Mm -hmm. again, padding sort of that's added on to reports of things like Sasquatch. In other words, to summarize, I could, and I, I share a view that I think that Coleman has espoused, I could believe maybe that there is one other kind of, you know, humanoid <laughs> creature out there that's covered in hair, but there's a totally separate one yeah. of similar size, you know, but there's more like a canine that, you know, it starts to strain credulity for me. <laughs> Micah, yeah, yeah. here's the big problem is that so many of your questions and, and ponderings would be solved if you would just accept the paranormal. If you would just open up and let yourself just breathe into it, brother, and uh, dive in with both feet and just accept stuff, because I, in all seriousness, I, I so much respect your approach. And as we've seen in the in the chat here, so many people do too. Is is just you're unbiased. You're not selling here anything here, uh, especially an idea. You're presenting an academic approach to research, which is the way you should do it. And if you have some interests, veer off here and there, explore everything, as we say, put everything on the table, see what makes sense. Don't discard the rest, but set it aside for further study later on, but spend your time pursuing what can be known. But there are branches where you start to get into the weird. Uh, And if you believe any of these cases at all, we had a a couple of great episodes with Stan Gordon, who's certainly tracked uh, Bigfoot in the stories of Pennsylvania of uh, Eastern Pennsylvania specifically, and uh, what's been going on there, and just reports of uh, is things you mentioned, eye shine, but but green eye shine, creatures that are long, shaggy, hairy, but completely white, white furred things, albino uh, Bigfoots of, of of course, but also a lot of variety in them regionally. In your inaugural podcast, you mentioned that there are reports of uh, of that horrible smell with some the skunk ape of Florida, but in other regions, no smell at all. Never a a pleasant smell, but different descriptions of possibly a multitude of subspecies in different descriptions. And now, of course, some people could be mistaken. These aren't often that close or clear as uh, your guest, uh, uh, was it David Gordon? David George Gordon. David George Gordon. When you try and just get good data, and I love the approach because it was all about like, if more people would just try to collect good data with good scientific methods, we'd understand a lot more. We'd have a a better knowledge base about this. But he said, I think I like to say, you're often panicked if you see a large, hairy man in the woods uh, that's about (laughs) six, seven feet tall 
running uh, maybe beside your car, your first thought is like not to get out your notebook and no, I said, could you pee in this cup, please? <laughs> like or or not, uh, uh, some scat would be nice. Some scat would be terrific. Yes, just, I'll just, just leave like, this like, here and be back. I'm gonna walk. Yeah. I'm gonna look the other way. Just you know, <laughs> we'll give you some privacy. <laughs> yes, I, I guess my point is you can veer off to that where it just it starts to get a little more folkloric and wild and weird. But I believe some of these people are describing something strange about the phenomenon. And of course, I admit it's it's much harder and, and maybe not productive to take a scientific look at that because we just don't have the tools for that. Well, a couple of points. And again, I think that it will become fairly evident the uh, influence that Lauren Coleman mm. has had me o- over the years. You know, I've met Lauren many times and, you know, consider him a friend, in fact, and, 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 and truly a, a mentor in a lot of ways. Even though when I was really young, we used to correspond a whole lot more than we do now. I ran into him at an event a few years ago and everything. We got a picture taken together and hung out for a bit. But I mean, we're overdue for a serious catch up. Because he really, uh, heck, I'd take a mustard at this point, to tell you the <laughs> truth. But I mean, he, yeah. he is someone who has had a profound influence on on me in terms of the way he approaches things from his, uh, you know, indigenous uh, American interests and his, you know, chronicling of ethnology in relation to this. And he actually early on co-authored a book with Jerome Clark called The Unidentified that sort of approached a more what Jacques Vallée did with Passport to Magonia for ufology, I think really that book, Clark and Coleman writing together, they were looking at things like Sasquatch and UFOs sort of through that lens, in in which case I actually find it to be an important book, but I also recognize it for what it is. And Coleman, of course, today says, you know, I don't endorse that, the premise that, you know, Jerry and I lay out in that book any longer. Coleman in more recent years, and in fact, actually probably since at least the early 2000s, if not earlier, has always said, look, we should begin by looking at Sasquatch as a biological Mm. reality. And we move up the scale from there. Now, I would maintain, hey, I'm interested in all different claims regarding the paranormal to some extent. But I mean, as I've gotten older, I've really narrowed it down to two, UFOs or UAP, as people like calling them now, Mm. and Sasquatch or relic hominoids. I don't necessarily see any connection between those two phenomena. You know, Stan Gordon, who you mm-hmm. mentioned, mm-hmm. you know, he has kind of long advocated that maybe there are certain crossovers. I saw a study by uh, economists a number of years ago that saw a crossover there. But what it was was that the sightings and in terms of the geographic distribution, you know, where sightings of Bigfoot right. and UFOs occur tend to overlap. Yeah. But, you know, an economical perspective, you know, two economists looking at this, they say the reason for the overlap is simple. It's that people see these things. And wherever you find people, you're going to see sightings sure, occurring, sure, right? Yeah. Now, uh, you know, again, coming back kind of to Coleman's idea, I would say that although I'm interested in other ideas and I'm open to other possibilities, we can't explain a lot of, you know, alleged paranormal phenomena. We don't have any understanding of the mechanism yeah. that facilitates, right. you know, things like, you know, interdimensional travel, portals, stuff like this. And so the problem I have and that I raise my observation, at least as far as, you know, those who would presume that Sasquatch must be paranormal, I would say you're trying to use an unexplainable quantity to explain another unexplainable quantity. <laughs> and in this case, in my opinion, and take that for what it is, but two negatives don't make a positive. Mm-hmm. Therefore, if we proceed with the possibility that there's a biological reality and that hypothesis ends up holding true later on down the road, we will have saved a lot of time and effort and energy chasing after a phenomenon we don't understand and trying to explain it through the lens of other things we don't understand. Yeah. 
because that's not going to really offer an explanation. It's just going to be right. more conjecture. Right. So I proceed with the understanding I have and, of course, my interest in history and anthropology. And I say, let's work from that base first and make our way up from there and hope, maybe, yeah. if we're lucky, that Sasquatch will fall somewhere into that general framework, right. which I think that there's a very strong case to be made that it does. You could say ghosts leave evidence, uh, other paranormal phenomenon does. Uh, certainly a lot of people think uh, UFOs have with uh, the Delphus ring and uh, some things left behind, radiation, scorch marks, things like that. They leave an imprint in our physical world, but mm -hmm. more so Sasquatch does, footprints. Uh, and, and this is what's odd. We've taken some very good footprints, I think, that are, uh, that are at the least anomalous and not faked by a guy wearing a giant carved wooden feet on his shoes. Some things that are, uh, are pretty amazing. I believe fully in the, in the PGF as being authentic. But it, it stops there. So this is the big question with, with a large primate that uh, apparently a lot of people claim to have seen. We haven't really gotten any solid fur evidence or scat. And I think that was the two things that most animals leave behind. On the other hand, as you talked about in your, your first podcast, is that it took a, five years or so for a team of biologists to actually find traces of the grizzly that they were trying to study which is a known, a well-known creature, but just tracking a large animal is not as easy as a lot of people would like to think it is and would use that as an excuse uh, that it doesn't exist at all. But to your point, start with the, with the footprints, and this is at least something that, even if you want to believe that it is interdimensional in a way, and of course, that's another big diversion of belief in that people, uh, a lot of people do believe there's some element, and maybe that's why we don't ever see any further traces of one, or they're a carcass, or they're dead, or other physical traces that somehow they just kind of vaporize after a little bit, especially after a sighting. But we do have, uh, you, you can't, you know, I agree, you can't go any further with that in, with any kind of measurement, but they do make an imprint physically in our world that people have reported on, and you can start there. And, and I, I believe with, uh, as you said, with good scientific principles and data gathering, start from there and then build up. And then the other stuff, maybe one day we'll get to. Maybe, we'll, maybe one day we'll understand interdimensionally, uh, other dimensions and uh, multiple dimensions and portals and things like that. And, and maybe that's how they're getting around. But until then, start with what we know. Exactly. Yeah. You know, work with a basis that we can all agree upon, you know, that we can apply scientific standards to. And, you know, I'll quote a couple of fantastic anthropologists briefly, Dr. Jeffrey Meldrum, who I've, you know, had the benefit of having ongoing dialogue with. We did a two-part episode for the Sasquatch Tracks podcast, which I produce about this topic. Put out about a couple of episodes every month of Sasquatch Tracks, and that's just been a delight uh, to do with Dakota and Jeff, my wonderful co-hosts, who really put in tremendous amounts of effort, you know, making that project happen, especially with my crazy schedule. But we've also had ongoing uh, discussions with Dr. Meldrum as a part of a group of scientists who are some of them a little more low key than Dr. Meldrum is, but they are very much interested in this topic. And so when people say scientists don't take this seriously, that's flat wrong. There are many who, unfortunately, on account of the cultural stigmas that are applied towards Sasquatch, they are hesitant to become publicly involved, but they nonetheless absolutely maintain an interest. And of course, I respect their privacy, privacy, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> and their, uh, their choice to remain behind the scenes for the time being. But I hope that we can engage in this dialogue in a way that they won't continue to have to feel that they must remain behind the scenes and that maybe they can begin to engage this topic and and do so uh, feeling secure and also with the understanding, you know, mutually with the public that this is 
recognized as something that indeed there is far more evidence perhaps in support of. It's not just a crazy idea or just folklore. And to the other side of this, again, coming back to Dr. Meldrum, he's often said, listen, there are footprints. No doubt many of them are hoaxes. But all it would take would be one footprint actually left by one of these creatures. If we could suppose that as little as one were real, then we're talking about a biological reality. And as Myra Shackley, who I will continue to reference because she was one of the fantastic females of hominology and someone who I just, again, have unending uh, respect for with her writing and research, being one of the few archaeologists who got involved in all this, she very eloquently put it like this, myths and folklore don't leave unidentifiable footprints. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's the clincher right there. You know, I want to get into talking with you guys to a bit about uh, some of the North American aspects of this and how we can kind of establish the history of Sasquatch in North America beyond 1958. But if you'll indulge me, may mm-hmm. I share one more medieval account that's really yeah, interesting? Yeah, absolutely. No, again, these are these are the stories you don't hear about. Not many people are familiar with, including us. And uh, the, these stories give you context and that it takes away the easy, uh, as I said at the beginning, the easy explanation is like, well, this is, this is a pretty modern phenomenon. It's just a bunch of hoaxers and hoaxers. And then we don't know about this from the past because it wasn't happening before TV and the $6 million man and, and, and all, all his popular <laughs> culture that was now passing it around, which again, that fueled people's imaginations. And that's why they're seeing them now. There's nothing real to it. It's that uh, they, I believe they've always been seen depending on who you talk to. Yeah. And, and this, you know, what I'm offering these historical accounts, I realize that, you know, a skeptic may, you know, review these and say, okay, well, wonderful legends involving what we've already already recognized for quite some time, you know, myths and traditions involving wild people, but this is an evidence of Sasquatch. I, I completely understand that the skeptic will generally view these through that lens. Mm-hmm. Um, now, there are some problems I would find with that. Of course, I think that they probably are leading with the presumption, well, we know Sasquatch doesn't exist, therefore, what could these accounts possibly entail since we know they aren't Sasquatch, right? Again, I often hear many skeptics say we're the truly open-minded ones, and some of them actually are. I have tremendous respect for a lot of good skeptics, and there are a lot of good ones out Mm -hmm. there. I consider myself fundamentally a skeptic. I'm sure, you know, at points that kind of comes through in this discussion because I'm not willing to unequivocally say, I I know these creatures are out there, I believe. (laughs) No, it's like John Keel said, belief is the enemy. I chose a long time ago to forego belief, show me the evidence. So I'm a skeptic in that regard. But I also think that on the more debunker side of skepticism, there are plenty of skeptics who are all too comfortable saying, here's what I believe or disbelieve. And now I'm going to orient my thinking around my you know, predisposition toward disbelief. They may not even realize they do that, but there's an ideological preponderance toward disbelief, which they filter everything through. Mm. And they'll say, well, no, I'm applying scientific methodology. Well, to the contrary, I would say you're defaulting to what seems like the safest position on this argument. Whereas actual science is being done by the Jeffrey Meldrums of the Mm -hmm. world, the Myra Shackleys of the world, the people who are going out there and putting their bums on the line Getting in the field, making castings, spending, you know, weeks on end in the forest, you know, talking to potential cranks, crazies, weirdos, you know, and crackpots, but trying to get to the bottom of establishing an understanding through the accumulation of evidence. I mean, there's a real big difference between doing actual field work, you know, going to school and studying anthropology, really trying to apply science 
and then falling back on the very simple disposition of show me the evidence. I mean, you can argue that all yeah. day and it's hard to mm -hmm. argue against it. So I do sympathize with the skeptics in that regard, but I also sure. think that at times, not always, but sometimes there's a bit of intellectual laziness. Oh, well, I know what <laughs> my argument is. Now you guys prove the extraordinary claims. There are many scientists who are trying to do that. Yeah. These historical accounts are simply aimed at doing one thing. There have been instances where I've seen skeptics say, there's no evidence in the historical record, therefore we know it's a modern phenomena. If we look in the historical record, there are some accounts, as we're seeing here, that maybe are suggestive of a deeper history of this phenomenon. Now, another example, Bavaria, 1427, we have the account provided by uh, Johann Schiltberger. He had essentially gone off to fight uh, in the wars against the Ottoman Empire. He was captured. He's taken prisoner. He's held captive for a number of years, and he ends up actually in the company of the Khan of Siberia where he essentially becomes a runner. But while he's there in Siberia, he had a rather interesting account that he shared, which he later wrote about uh, when he returned to Bavaria, and he wrote a chronicle of his travels. And this is the account that he gives us from that period. On the same mountain, he's talking about a mountain, which is at the other edge of a desert, which they call in that region the end of the earth, which I take to be the Gobi Desert. But he says, on the same mountain, there are savages who are not like other people, and they live there. They're covered all over the body with hair, except the hands and face, and run about like other wild beasts in the mountain, and also eat leaves and grass and anything they can find. The lord of the country sent Adiji, a man and a woman, from among these savages that had been taken in the mountain. Or rather, sent to Adiji, rather. This, this was the location that they were sent mm -hmm. to. Now, accounts like this, something I want to point out I've been rather selective with, the, I've got a lot more than the ones that we're covering tonight. This is by no means the only ones that I have, but the ones that we're reviewing here are generally accounts where they describe full hair coverage mm. and also which are occurring in regions where the observations generally occur in a specific locale, not where a person has traveled to another country and they may be potentially observing people from another culture. Right, right who may be from a different ethnic group that they wouldn't normally recognize, and thereby they may misinterpret them and even dehumanize them to an extent, you know, and hence the traveler's tales that we hear about so often. In the cases I've tried to provide up to this point, we're talking about people who go to a region, and in that region they recognize that there's another kind of people who live on the fringes in very remote areas. These people described as living ferally, you know, subsisting mm -hmm. off of the land, you know, mostly off of plant matter like other animals, but also featuring essentially full hair coverage. And in the account that Schultzberger gives us, again, he says, they're covered all over the body with hair except the hands and the face and run around like other wild beasts in the mountain and also eat leaves and grass and anything they can find. So it doesn't sound very much like he's describing just some people. Yeah. And I would say the same of some of the accounts from China that we looked at earlier, where it, rather than people traveling to another country and encountering people they aren't familiar with, they go into the mountains in their own country and they say there are things like people that exist there. And I, I definitely find these to be rather interesting accounts in that regard because, you know, it does seem to parallel the idea of here in North America, the last place you'd ever expect to find something manlike you know, existing in the remote wilds. And yet this is the, the exact sort of narrative that is presented. People say that they go into the mountains. Oh my God, and I saw a Sasquatch, right? It's, it's very similar. And in fact, again, that commonality exists in a lot of these historical accounts as well. Uh, 
Howdy, I'm Oscar, and when I'm not wrangling chupacabras out here in West Texas, I'm listening to Astonishing Legends. Now, let's get back to the show. You know, at this point, really, we I would like to maybe bring it back over into North America, tell you the truth, because, I mean, really, this is where people know Sasquatch best. Again, let's start with the whole idea of the hoax being born in 1958. And again, to, to, to try and temper my own tendencies at times toward belief, you mm-hmm. know, I, I buy books by skeptics, too. Uh, and, you know, for instance, Joshua Blue Bue's book, uh, Big for the Life and Times of Legend, fantastic read. I also bought uh, Loxton and Prothero's book, Abominable Science, a mm-hmm. while back. Mm-hmm. Are you guys familiar with that book by chance? The name is, I've heard the name, yeah. but not. But, no, I don't think I know that way, I mean, unless we've re- if we might have referred to it in our Yeti series, but I'm not sure if we have. I, I don't. It's you know, it's it's a good book. It's a very worthwhile book. But uh, Daniel Lockston, I believe, was the one who authored the chapter on Bigfoot. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, uh, I I found that chapter, despite the book overall being very interesting and a very good skeptical perspective on the topic. I mean, Prothero, uh, rather Lockston's chapter on Bigfoot, I was not impressed with it. <laughs> It seemed like it was very, I think it's safe to say, shallow research in the sense that he Mm. didn't dig deeply enough. A few of the points that he raises in the book, for instance, in that chapter, he says that um, John Green Mm -hmm. unequivocally describes Sasquatch as written about by J.W. Burns, first in 1929 in McLean's magazine, introducing British Columbia's Harry Giants Mm -hmm. as his famous article, where he takes this sort of anglicized version of a halcomalum word and presents this you know anglicized derivative sasquatch that we now know mm-hmm. in that book Lockston essentially says well john green says these things are you know the sasquatch were unequivocally giant indians they weren't described as being hairy or ape like they were just giant indians another thing he says is that william rowe is the first account from around 1955 This again, Forrest, the one that you referred to earlier. Mm -hmm. This is the first account where we see a description that sounds anything like the giant hairy ape that we recognize today. Hadn't even been present at the time in 1958 of the footprints hoaxed by Ray Wallace at Bluff Creek. Because again, keep in mind, that made headlines. William Rowe comes forward with his story thereafter. And I believe it was first published in the Vancouver province, his account of meeting a female Sasquatch mm, there on mm-hmm. Micah Mountain. Yeah. yeah. Yep. <laughs> That's, right. That's yeah. where it actually occurred, Micah Mountain. Another assertion is that, of course, the Patterson-Gimlin film also depicts a female Sasquatch. And therefore, in, in Lockton's view, the William Rowe encounter is extremely important because this is not only the first account we have of a ape-like creature that really creates Bigfoot, but this is also, no doubt, the inspiration for the Patterson-Gimlin hoax. Okay, so these are some of the points in that chapter, and I'm thinking, my gosh. So let's go down the list here. As far as the giant Indian extrapolation, Mm -hmm. this, of course, and this had been something that John Green had written about. Again, if we reference uh, on the track of Sasquatch, John Green did write that in his early readings of J.W. Burns, he interpreted that Burns was kind of talking about giant Indians Mm -hmm. and that these were much more like just giant humans rather than like uh, ape-like creatures. The problem with that is that I have to differ with John Green on that point, and I'll reference a account that's provided. If we go back to J.W. Burns' initial article, right, from McLean's Magazine, 1929, we have an account that was published in that first article 
And it was provided by a man named William Point, a resident of Agassiz, who, along with his girlfriend, was walking down a railroad track. And he wrote to J.W. Burns, and this is verbatim the account that appears in that first article. We were walking on the railroad track and within a short distance of the orchard when the girl noticed something walking along the track coming toward us. I looked up but paid no attention to it, as I thought it was some person on his way to Agassiz. But as he came closer, we noticed that his appearance was very odd, and on coming still closer, we stood still and were astonished, seeing that the creature was naked and covered with hair like an animal. We were almost paralyzed from fear. I picked up two stones with which I intended to hit him if he attempted to molest us, but within 50 feet or so, he stood up and looked at us. He was twice as big as the average man, with hands so long they almost touched the ground. It seemed to me his eyes were very large, and the lower part of his nose was wide and spread over the greater part of his face, which gave the creature such a frightful appearance that I ran away as fast as I could. So, covered in hair all right. over the body, right. long arms that almost fall to the ground, a wide nose that covers half the face. I mean, this description is very consistent with modern descriptions of Sasquatch as we know it, or Absolutely. Bigfoot, right. as it was yeah. known since 1958. Yeah. And so, again, if we read no deeper than John Green, and John, in fairness, mm -hmm. maybe early on misinterpreting the early accounts from J.W. Burns as just being giant Indians, that's not what's described necessarily yeah. at all. Yeah. Although some of J.W. Burns' writings do describe the creatures supposedly building fires, having language, and other things. So again, there. If anything, there's a whole lot of inconsistency in the reports that J.W. Burns collected. But among some of them were descriptions that were explicitly like our modern concept of Sasquatch or Bigfoot. Um, moving on to the next point, the idea that William Rowe had been the first to describe an ape-like humanoid. Well, here again, if you read into Chapter Two of John Green's book, he describes the Ruby Creek incident, which occurred mm. in the 1940s. Right predating William Rowe by more than a decade, which describes the Chapman family and how Mrs. Chapman said that she saw one of these giant creatures walking across a field and it came and it raided a salt barrel full of uh, fish in their property. Right. This is one of many instances that is cited, which also appeared notably in the Vancouver province, I believe, which had been uh, one of the regional newspapers there, that describes these Bigfoot or Sasquatch as they had been known between 1929 and 1958 um, as being large, hair-covered, and humanoid. Now, again, in, in abominable science, they go further and even argue that, well, you know, in this case also, we don't even know if William Rowe existed. I mean, John Green seems to be one of the only people that ever corresponded with him. As far as I know, there's never a photograph that's ever emerged of the guy. And I couldn't find John Kirk, actually, who had complimented you guys, by the way, had been the very one who had told Loxton. I think the article about William Rowe first appeared in the Vancouver province. Loxton said I couldn't find it, so I don't know if it ever actually appeared there. We really have no evidence that or, or, or know anything otherwise about William Rowe and who he was. Well, I have a newspapers.com yes. account. Not only did I find the original article, and there's a photograph of of William Rowe in the article, but I found another photograph, maybe three actually, of William Rowe. So there are photographs of the guy, and I believe his his uh, uh, his family members haven't they? Uh, some have spoken out, I believe. Uh, his daughter actually appeared in a documentary in the right. 1970s on Sasquatch, and she is the one who produced the drawing right. based on what William Rowe observed. Yeah. Yes, with all fairness, because I think that there's some merit to the book. I was very unimpressed with the the lack of depth mm. to the research. But again, it goes even further than that, because again, then they go on to say that this had been the inspiration for Patterson and Gimlin. I'll abstain from talking about the <laughs> Patterson-Gimlin film here, and I'll merely reference a fine several series 
long <laughs> podcast series that was uh, a couple of friends of mine did on this. <laughs> Probably the deepest and most authoritative look in audio format on this topic. And yes, I'm talking about Astonishing Legends. Please go back and listen to the series you guys did, everybody uh, at home listening, uh, on the Patterson-Gimlin film. You'll get the full story there, and there's indeed quite a lot to discuss, so I'm not going to talk about that tonight. (laughs) Quite all right. Thank you. That's that's a wonderful endorsement. Yeah. Yeah. We were going to talk about Ape Canyon a bit. Mm. Really, the most significant takeaway about Ape Canyon, in my opinion, is the fact that around the time that that was published... Uh, and again, you know, Associated Press newspaper reports began to tell about the miners, the prospectors who had first, you know, come out of the mountains around Mount St. Helens so that they were attacked by mountain mm-hmm. devils. Again, Loxton's contention had been there were no descriptions before 1955 of ape-like creatures. You can go back. You don't even have to have a newspapers.com account. If you go on the Library of Congress website, okay, Chronicling America, go search for Ape Man and narrow your search to around 1924. Mm-hmm. You'll find all kinds of newspaper reports from that era. Tribe of ape men around Mount St. Helens attack miners, unequivocally described as ape-like mountain devils covered in hair like a bear. And in a lot of these articles, there's a gentleman by the name of uh, Jorg, or sometimes his name is is spelled differently, but Totsky was his last name. And he had been a publisher of a, a magazine that was called The Real American. This, of course, a Native American publication. The researcher Mark Marcel has done incredible research into this. And you guys should talk to Marcel sometime. He's one of my favorite guys and favorite researchers into all of this. But Totsky, of course, is saying... Well, to the and he, he, of course, having associations with the Clallam mm-hmm. tribe, Totsky said in the newspapers at that time and appeared interviewed in many of them saying, among the Clallam, these mountain devils described by Fred Beck mm-hmm. and his mining companion, these are known to the Clallam. They are known as the Siatko or the Siatik is, I think, the word that he used. And he said that, you know, the Clallam thought that the Siatik had been extinct. We hadn't heard about them in 15 mm-hmm. years. But he goes on to give a description of the Seatic. What's really interesting about all of this is, okay, we have, of course, the claim that Bigfoot begins in 1958, right? And that prior to 1950, well, really after 58, because that's when William Rowe comes forward with his story, but he claims it happened in 1955. Really, we have no descriptions of an ape-like creature like Sasquatch as we know it today prior to that. That was the claim by the skeptics. Not only do we have a story like this, okay, numerous stories like this prior to 1958 and even 1955, reference the Chapman story. We can go back to 1929 when J.W. Burns first wrote about Sasquatch and we see remarkable consistency in the description given by William Point. We go further back to 1924 and Fred Beck and his companions describe ape men that attacked them. We have Totsky describing the Seatic. And then if we go all the way back to the 1850s, this is the most fascinating aspect of all of this to me. One of the earliest ethnological accounts related to the Siatic or Siat Co that appeared in writing was written by George Gibbs, a naturalist and ethnologist who had initially gone out to California uh, during the gold rush, but ended up staying and doing incredible work as a uh, anthropologist and ethnologist. But Gibbs had written, of course, a book called Tribes of Western Washington and Northwestern Oregon in 1877. There's no mention of Sasquatch in this book. And in fact, I want to quote another anthropologist, uh, Wayne Suttles, who in 1972 wrote a great paper on the anthropological track of Sasquatch, I think was the title of this paper. And uh, Suttles wrote, 
George Gibbs collected information on the Puget Sound area in the 1850s that was published in his tribes of Western Washington and Northwestern Oregon in 1877. In the body of this work, there is no mention of Sasquatch-like beings, and there is in the appended dictionary of the Nisqually, in, in the Nisqually English mm -hmm. section, the entry on the Siatko, a race of spirits who haunt fishing places. Now, that's basically all that's said in that published version of the book. But wait, there's more. A little known fact is that there was an unpublished portion from the book that never made it to print that didn't surface from George Gibbs' original writings until many decades later. In fact, this didn't come to light until after 1972, or actually it may have been published prior to then, but it, it's likely that Wayne Suttles probably by 1972 hadn't seen that when he notes that Gibbs doesn't say anything about the Co. in this book that he wrote. That didn't mean that he never wrote about it, though, because I found in the Oregon Historical Quarterly, volume 56, number 4, December 1955, in an article by none other than Ella E. Clark, the fact that there had been this redacted portion that didn't go to print in the book, which a great-grandniece of George Gibbs had kept all these years, and then she turns it over to the Oregon Historical Society, and it's published. And you won't believe what's actually said in this portion that didn't appear in the original print, but which only surfaces decades later. I will now quote from the original manuscript of George Gibbs. Once thought lost to time. He says, One other race of beings I have classed separately, as they in particular are supposed to infest the earth and do not appear to have been properly elliptilicum. This a reference to spirit mm. creatures in various traditions among the Northwestern indigenous Americans. They are Siatko, he says, in the upper Chehalas, Staitatl, or in the Klikitat, the Shiaha. Their belief in these beings is apparently universal among the different tribes, though there is a great discrepancy in the accounts of them. By some, the Siatko are described as of gigantic size, their feet 18 inches long and shaped like a bear's. They wear no clothes, but the body is covered with hair like that of a dog, only not so thick. Others describe them as being of natural size and resembling men, except that they gibber and chatter, one Siatko making noise enough to represent a dozen persons. They are said to live in the mountains and holes underground and to smell badly. <laughs> they come down chiefly in the fishing season, at which time the Indians are excessively afraid of them. At the report of Siatko, they all run for their houses, fire their guns, and shout. They are visible only at night, at which time they approach the houses, steal salmon, carry off young girls, and smother <laughs> children. Their voices are like that of the owl, and they possess the power of charming so that those hearing them become demented or fall down in a swoon. A clickatat informed me that he believed that they were not elliptilicum or of the demon race, but came afterwards, and that part of them are still men and dwell beyond the mountains where they hunt and are very hospitable while the others steal at night. They are sometimes seen spearing fish themselves." Now, that's the account from George Gibbs that didn't originally appear in the publication of his book, but which the original manuscript retrieved later conveys. But guys, finally, here we also have going all the way back to the middle of the 19th century, a very elaborate description of the same thing that Totsky is describing in 1924, which he's saying this is what the miners at Eight Canyon mm -hmm. saw, the Siatka. So as far as the American history of these creatures going beyond 1955, I've, I actually would argue there's quite a lot of information about these things. And here again, as we see with George Gibbs' account, remarkable consistency. Right. Hair coverage all over the body, size, the length of the footprint, the 
the odor, yeah. a lot of tremendous similarity to our modern concept of Sasquatch. Yeah. I don't think you could have drawn a clearer line. And for, correct me, did you mention how it was Burns, right, who applied the term Sasquatch through his experiences, Yeah, right? J.W. Burns, yeah, this was, best we know, he invented the term Sasquatch based on a Hakomelum term, which I'll probably butcher this, but it probably would have been pronounced more like Saskate or yeah, Saskate. Right. There, there are different variants among the different tribes. And in fact, actually, Wayne Suttles in his in his um, research paper from 1972 goes down the list of all the different variants of, of names. And the one that he thinks had actually been the progenitor that J.W. Burns probably borrowed from. And listening to some of the programming you provided to us uh, that you've done in other shows, I really liked the through line that you demonstrated in terms of how the names changed and, and the words changed. And But along the way, you know, and, and you've made that point very well here tonight, especially with the timeline, there's a consistency to these ideas of these men going back or these creatures, I should say, going back to these very, very early times. And you can find that thread there. And it does seem like it's a mistake to disconnect each time a different culture is describing it a different way, just to cut the that string. You know, by the same token, though, it's a long time ago. There's no research. Connecting it is hard, too. But there's a, a preponderance of circumstantial evidence that's very, very intriguing. And I think you've done an excellent job of, of tying that together. What I'm hoping to try and establish, like you're talking about there, Scott, you know, is Bigfoot didn't begin with a hoax in 1958. There's some confusion about the difference based on, again, I think a misreading of John Green's interpretation of J.W. Burns' writing, which has led to the idea that Sasquatch is somehow a different cultural concept entirely from the idea of Bigfoot. I don't think that's the case. And again, if you do look deeply enough, you see consistency in the narratives, consistency in the descriptions. And continuity, I think that we can at least take all the way back to the middle of the 19th century with George Gibbs' account, you know, drawn from ethnological lore, of course, that he was collecting. And I I haven't established, I don't know if we'll ever know why that portion wasn't included in his final book, but I'm so glad that he had this relative, this grandniece, Mm -hmm. who supplies this to a historical society decades later and says, you know, here's my great granddad's or great uh, uncle's uh, book, you know. And, uh, you know, you guys might enjoy seeing this. Oh, look, here's a whole portion that was never published. This little historical, you know, snippet may not be of great significance to others. But, I mean, as time would show, this could be of incredible significance in the historical establishment of Sasquatch and whatever Mm -hmm. name it's known by in in any given period. It's apparent historical presence uh, that goes back, indeed, much further than 1955 or 1958. Just to reiterate, one of your main points is that a lot of folks who are skeptical about the existence of this being, including yourself, which is good, I'm not lumping you in on this reasoning, but you were like, I haven't seen the hard proof yet. But by the same token, a lot of other folks who are maybe taking an easier way out say, oh, it goes back to this hoax with uh, Ray Wallace, 1958. But you can already just very easily show incidents lead in the decades leading up to that and then go even further. And I think that that's the important overall point that people need to understand about the information you've presented tonight. That and one final point also. Uh, again, the idea that if humans arrived in North America, presumably from traversing a land bridge that existed at some time toward the end of the Pleistocene, the the general idea had traditionally been that it would have had to have been toward the end of the Pleistocene when we have the recession of the glaciers that opened temporarily 
this sort of sweet spot where the glaciers have receded enough, but sea levels haven't risen high enough that there's a land bridge that actually bridges, Eura you know, parts of Eurasia and North America. And that, you know, again, the earliest what were yet to become indigenous Americans arrive on the continent at this point. But there's, again, growing archaeological evidence that supports the idea that watercraft were probably used. In fact, this may go all the way back to Homo erectus. Homo erectus probably was using watercraft. Mm -hmm. And although people have often argued and said, well, there's no evidence of that, of course there's no evidence because it's perishable right, right. technology. It's not like stones where you have arrowheads and spear points and things. We're talking about wood. We're talking about, you know, cordage, uh, you know, and other kinds of technologies that would have been great at floating, not very good at, you know, lasting thousands and thousands and thousands of years. Now, my point in raising this point here is that it very well may have been that people didn't have to wait until there was a land bridge. They could have actually been bouncing along the coastlines. The coastal migration theory, yeah. Right. And, you know, I've, I've interviewed Dr. Uh, Tom Dillahay. I mean, talk about one of the most influential modern anthropologists. He excavated Monte Verde down in Chile. And, of course, this unequivocally established the earlier than Clovis or pre-Clovis idea as far as American archaeology, North and South American. But there are also radiocarbon dates from the adjacent Monte Verde site which go even further back to maybe in excess of, you know, 34,000 years, that strongly suggests that there was someone there a long, long, long time ago. And there are also North American archaeological sites that while many of them are disputed, they suggest not only that humans were here a long time ago, but also that they might have been here on the continent. And this is where we get really speculative, but some of the evidence is suggestive of a human presence even prior to when Homo sapiens mm -hmm. sapiens were believed to have exited Africa, which raises another intriguing possibility. Could there have been another kind of hominin mm -hmm. in North America mm -hmm. that was actually responsible for some of this archaeological evidence? Might that be one interpretation? Yeah. It's possible. But again, if we know humans made their way from Eurasia over into North America, it's not impossible that other species did this as well. Right. And that's the whole reason of looking at historical references to these things. If they're in North America, they wouldn't be specific to North America. They'd have to be elsewhere. And at least what we've looked at tonight with the historical record is suggestive. That's one interpretation that indeed we find those historical accounts in the old world too. We've... Luckily, latched on to a, a topic that people uh, were always interested in, and I think hoping that we'd get to, or anyone would, or they didn't realize how interested they would be in it, uh, because there is so much, th this breadth and, I guess, overview of the historical record of this. And, and so I want to make a couple of points. First of all, I take some stock into people's eyewitness accounts, and I like to relay this one story that this did appear, well, first of all, I guess there was a uh, perception by people who were kind of wonks in this area, and they they really study it. And uh, it's an idea of uh, we mostly encounter this, or I thought about it with uh, you could say spirit research and ghosts. And the overall view is like there's zero evidence, zero evidence of anything spiritual, anything ghost wise, this and that. And my counter to that is that, yes, there is. It just depends on what you think is evidence, it, what you consider good enough. And we just encountered that where uh, in our coverage of, well, the house that inspired the conjuring. So it was the Arnold estate uh, in New Hampshire and the idea that uh, there was a family that experienced 10 years of outrageous uh, spiritual activity, if you believe them. And then the people that moved in afterwards experienced a few strange things that shouldn't have happened or that were unexplainable, but not much. And then you have the view that, uh, well, 
it just, uh, when I was there or when I talked to the people that actually lived there, it just wasn't enough evidence for me. It's weird, but I'm not impressed. And so you, then, you, then you also wonder about uh, pieces that we haven't found yet. And, and again, going back to your inaugural uh, episode, uh, David George Gordon, and one of the phrases that I love the most is, uh, an absence of evidence is not evidence of an absence. Right. Because you haven't found it yet. Well, and it just as, as we've been talking about all night, it was a piece of a jawbone, and I believe a fragment of a hand bone. There was a little bit more than the, than the jawbone that went with the sample, but like maybe three or four pieces at the most tiny pieces. And it's accepted now that Gigantopithecus blackie was a real thing, and it was this huge. Whereas people don't want to believe that an ape could be nine feet tall. That's monstrous. And that it could have lived. Uh, it could be extant. But just from that little piece, I think mainstream scientists, anthropologists, zoologists have generally accepted its existence from a piece of evidence that they consider worthwhile, that, uh, well, you know, we've checked it. It's, uh, yeah, you can extrapolate that, its size, and uh, we're going to accept that. So that's accepted. And I, and I agree, some other things are, they don't exist. So it's like with any bit of history beyond the pieces that we have, and we came across this with, uh, I always thought it was fascinating with our Gobekli Tepe research, and that archaeologists were saying, like, well, this was constructed before the invention of the wheel. And so that kind of blows our mind because the, the common pop perception is that uh, there's a, a little cartoon caveman carving a wheel out of a piece of stone and putting an axle in it and using that as a wheel. It's like, we don't have evidence of that, but if it was made out of wood, that may very well have rotted away and there's no evidence of it. But they also, I believe there are other signs and indications that they were not using wheel technology when they built this thing. And you're talking about slabs of stone that were carved, uh, some weighing up to 17 tons and transported over great distances. Same thing with Stonehenge. We just don't know. So uh, I want to get to a, um, there is a gripe here in the comments about how, what they consider facts that you're not getting to. So this is what I find interesting is that, well, up to a certain point, there is just a written record as with anything in history. And if you didn't believe that, then there, there was no ancient world. We have ruins but beyond the pottery that was discovered, I, I believe at Jericho, uh, it was at Pottery A and Pottery B, or uh, I'm getting that wrong, but basically two different periods based on the pottery designs. Uh, we had no knowledge of their life before that. And other than that, there are stones arranged in a possibly a housing configuration. These people may not have existed because we just don't have enough evidence or what we consider good evidence, but we know they're there. And we certainly don't know what they lived like because nobody wrote it down then. Or you, you're talking about a society that didn't have written language, but those oral traditions are passed down, and maybe some remnants of it are wrong, and some are misinterpreted, but there's got to be some kernels of truth in there. But So I guess the question to you is, what would you say to the, the question that there are facts that you're not getting to? Or maybe that you're, because everybody in here is just saying you're, they love your approach. You're trying to take the academic through line of what is known and staying with that and not veering off into the unknowns as entertaining as they may be, what do you think is generally considered facts that we can go by, I guess? First, let me just say that, you know, since this isn't a parapsychological right. discussion, I won't claim to be a mind reader. But if, if we're talking about, and I, I'm not seeing the mm. chat, so I'm going off of your paraphrasing there. Uh, if there are facts I'm not getting to, perhaps what's being referenced is, you know, 
what about the evidence for the existence of these creatures today, right? And again, if I'm not touching on those elements and I'm only seeming to deal with like 1958 and before, that's entirely intentional. And again, I don't know if this is mm-hmm. the, the answer uh, in response to the question that was being asked, but again, let me just state uh, for the record what I'm trying to look at here. In response to the idea that there's no evidence in the historical record in written accounts throughout history that seem to describe an awareness by people throughout time of something equivalent to our modern concept of relict hominoids like Bigfoot or Sasquatch, what I'm attempting to provide are an analysis of what might be at least good contenders, reasonable contenders, that do support the idea that there's a historical record that does actually recount observations of these creatures in some instances. With, of course, full knowledge of the care one Mm -hmm. must take in knowing that looking back, travelers' tales, you know, the unfortunate dehumanization of different cultural groups, you Mm -hmm. know, racism, Mm -hmm. you know, a number of factors that are present and that are, of course, endemic to human interactions and throughout cultures throughout time. You know, with recognition for all of those, you know, elements, if we're careful and we look at some of these historical accounts, I do think that some of them do describe what certainly would be a good match for our modern concept of the relic hominoid. That's what I'm yeah. trying to do. And again, if there are facts that aren't being addressed, it may be indeed some of the physical evidence that you know modern proponents would discuss. But again, I would say, please go listen to or you know read, more importantly, since so few people read these days, go read the works of mm-hmm. Jeffrey Meldrum, Sasquatch legend science, you know, go read Dr. John Bendernagel's books, you know, the discovery of the Sasquatch. Go read John Green's work. Go read, you know, Peter Byrne's book. You know, there's an updated version of his book, The Search for Bigfoot, which he republished and which is available at his website, um, which I highly recommend because of the historical value of his perspectives, but also the field research that he was doing. The one book that Rene Day Hendon wrote, uh, co-authored, I believe, with Don Hunter, is well worth the read. Um, Mm -hmm. Grover Krantz, of course, also wrote about this. He published papers, but he also wrote a couple of books like Bigfoot Sasquatch Evidence is the title that it's available under nowadays. Here's a scientist really seriously looking at this from an anthropological perspective. And there are countless Mm. other books that we could name as well. One of them I mentioned also earlier was uh, Chad R. Mint's book, The Historical Bigfoot. All these are going to provide additional details. And again, there are plenty of facts, but within the purview of this conversation, let me be clear, I'm trying to help establish a possible historical lineage that might help us frame the idea that these creatures didn't just Right. Somehow spring into existence through a portal in 1958. <laughs> and it's worldwide here. And it's just kind of the last thing that a uh, couple of anecdotes I, I, I love telling, so I'm going to do it here. Because uh, podcasting, it can also sure. be an indulgent media form. Um, <laughs> so as we've proven time and time again, there's a cultural aspect, which I, Scott and I fervently respect and admire. And you take it for what you will, but we love to present it. Uh, you're going to believe it, whether you, w- w- no matter what we say, and you should believe what you're, uh, what you're inclined to, and consider fact or fiction, fakery, uh, up to your own sense of reason, uh, and it has to make sense to yourself. Uh, one thing I wanted to mention is that we came across in the strangest places uh, when we do these this kind of research is uh, the Russian Yeti and the, the Mansi peoples, the indigenous peoples of Siberia and Russian, especially uh, Sverdlovsk Oblast in that area and the area of Dead Mountain. It's like, oh yeah, that's the Mank. We fear them. We respect them, but we don't mess with them. And that is so much the cultural vibe around the world is that uh, the people that live in the area, uh, the people that have been living there for, for generations, 
hundreds of years, thousands of years. In the case of uh, the Nepalese in the, in the Himalayas or the Himalayas, however you want to pronounce it, and, and looking at what is making these tracks actually. And, you know, as from my last reading, the, the Nepalese people or there were, that area was first inhabited by human beings maybe uh, over 500 years ago. Not ancient, but respectably long enough ago that uh, lots of generations have seen all the flora and fauna that are in the area and know it well. And uh, no disrespecting of anyone else that comes in that's not native to the area, but you're telling people, you're trying to tell them what they know about their own area where you have not lived there for generations and they've passed down the traditions. And the, uh, the fact is that they've figured out how to survive there and be a part of the environment and the, the nature around them and survive in harmony. And, and that time gets to know what's there. So uh, two things I want to say, though, about, um, I guess it's uh, two of my favorite stories. And there is a, uh, a documentary, actually, there, there's two uh, that came out that feature the host, Mark Evans. And uh, he has some background in uh, basically an adventure, some, some background in biology and zoology, I think. I, I can't remember his uh, bona fides, but he's, uh, he's not just a TV uh, pretty face uh, going on these uh, expeditions, but he's, he's determined to go to the places where Yeti evidence, as in hide, fur, finger bones, things that are relics, in the Himalayas and uh, and test it with, for DNA. So there was uh, two documentaries, and he goes to Nepalese people that are living there, the Sherpas, and he talks to them, and he, he asks about their legends and traditions and their oral stories. And uh, the one that I came away uh, loving is that the uh, one of the elders, he had never traveled to the United States, but uh, he was taken to the Bronx Zoo, and there's some discussion, of course, about the animals that are, are native to his area. And as they got to the bear cages, somebody who was one of his uh, chaperones or tour guides was saying like, well, well, there you go. Now that bear there, that is similar to what you think your Yeti is, right? And the, the elder, you know, that he's probably at that time, he's probably in his late sixties or seventies. Like, no, that's no, that, that, that that's a bear. <laughs> I know, I know the difference between a bear <laughs> and a yeti and you're mistaken that is that's not a yeti and they're like oh okay okay and as you as you do respectfully it's like okay well we'll we'll see about that and then they get to the gorilla cages and he goes that's a yeti i've seen that that is more like a yeti than the bear which you're trying to tell me is a yeti and my thing is don't tell the guy what what he knows (laughs) he's he's grown up for generations his people have uh for 500 years they know the animals, they know what they've seen, they've heard the cries, they've seen evidence. And I do believe they're, they're, one is not mutually exclusive of the other. You can have something like a Himalayan or Nepalese brown bear with a weird paw print and a weird, a weird way of climbing trees, leaving tracks that are befuddling to outsiders that come and they're like, look at that thing. Like, that's a huge, giant, big old toe on that thing. That's not a bear, but it actually is. And so that's uh, Daniel, uh, Dr. Daniel Taylor's mission with his books and research was to find out what that is uh, with DNA. But that does not rule out something that is more hominin, something that is more bipedal, even though this bear can walk on two feet, and it's been seen doing that. There's something that can be more man-like, let's say, uh, human-like. So that's one aspect that I like is that uh, basically they're trying to tell this guy what he knows. Who's, who's an elder and, and it's not, it's still not respected. It's just like, nah, it's just old tales, you know? 
the second thing I like is that there, the follow-up uh, documentary, and I believe that was called Yeti, Myth, Man, or Beast, which is kind of a follow-up to the first one. So again, that's Mark Evans, and he talks to some people who are kind of in the know, uh, and they're basically they're trying to get at DNA. That's the, that's the end goal here. So as I said, the Denisovan DNA was only discovered six years ago. Uh, so it's not like it's been around for a long time. They meet up with Reinhold Messner. Uh, he's got a sample, and, and usually these things turn out to be uh, uh, bears or or something else. Uh, weirdly, uh, he 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 claims to have had Himmler's Heydrich Himmler's Nazi bear <laughs> that he sent them into yeah. the area, into the region to look for this Aryan super uh, hominin. They came back with something which uh, the lead there. Uh, Schaefer had stuffed, Ernst Schaefer, the leader of the expedition uh, for Himmler, had stuffed. So that, that's the approach of the, the, the second documentary. And they are then sending samples back to evolutionary biologist, Dr. Charlotte Lindqvist. And he, here's what I like. So I think what happens in connection with her, and she's testing all this for DNA, with a team that goes to explore this high mountain region where there's a pond of water, and the locals will say, well, you know, we, we've seen Yeti in the area, uh, but we've never seen anything like a monkey or a gorilla. Certainly that they don't live this high up. They don't seem to exist here. There's nothing for them to eat. It's pretty barren. So what they did was they, with a biologist, and I can't remember her name, but uh, she was uh, she was French in, in origin. They take a sample of water. They strain it for DNA because anything that would drink out of that pool, walk through it, bathe in it, sit down in it, is going to leave traces of DNA behind. They, they sift the water. They, they're very careful about taking samples. They send those back. And the, uh, the twist is that they find something that is 99% human. Now, what that tells you is that it's not a person. It's not a human that may have drank out of that or, or washed their hands and or stepped through it. The only other surprising thing was that they found DNA from a, I believe, a sheep or a goat that was not suspected of being in the area. So they know that things that are, that typically aren't there or known to have been there have been up that high and did drink out of that pond. But the finding that there's something that's 99% human in DNA, but not a gorilla or ape or monkey that was in that pond is is pretty startling. And I think that's a great starting point oh, to finding out, there you go, there's your science, there's your proof, your facts, your evidence. Yeah, and I think that that's a more, um, again, not to say that there isn't good science uh, that is done mm -hmm. by skeptics. There certainly is. Uh, but I think that what I favor is a more proactive kind of a scientific mm -hmm. effort, which unfortunately in this kind of you know research can be fruitless at times because people may go out there searching for something, maybe not necessarily expecting to find it, but hoping that they'll find something and then they never produce any physical evidence. And they have to eventually say, well, after traveling into the heart of the Congo and looking for Mokele Mbembe and not finding actual dinosaurs, I, I guess I have to presume that maybe this is a less likely possibility than I had once thought it was. I mean, again, that's just one example. In this instance, I think that with Sasquatch, I really favor the proactive scientific effort to say, okay, with the abundance of anecdotal evidence, can we get out there and can we find hard evidence, you know, which again, I think is complemented by historical data, which may provide a few other clues as well. For instance, um, this is something that uh, Arments talks about in his historical Bigfoot. If we look at the broader distribution of sightings reports over time and throughout history, this may also help lead to further research in the future in terms of being able to locate geographical locations that are going to be concentrations 
and where, you know, future research may be more fruitful and other things. So again, I really think that, you know, a sort of a whole of, of, uh, you know, we, we hear, for instance, recently, the government saying a whole of government approach to studying UFOs, right? Uh, we need to get, you know, all these intelligence agencies, the military in on this and everything. I would say that we, we really need a similar kind of a holistic approach to study of Sasquatch, not just say, let's send the weekend warriors out there and have them collect the evidence. You know, let's try and get scientists who are sympathetic to the idea of the discovery of new species to also, you know, support some of these efforts, maybe to temper some of the eager enthusiasm of the weekend warriors, look at the historical data, but also look at the anthropological you know, considerations and other areas too. You know, look at psychology, look at sociology and look at how belief and cultural factors influence people's ideas and preconceptions about these things. But really, again, a more holistic sort of, you know, a, you know, a completer kind of analysis like that may prove very beneficial. But at the end of the day, like you say, Forrest, you know, getting out there, getting evidence in the form mm-hmm. of DNA or something along those lines that gives us a shred of physical proof that's really what's going to be able yeah. to do it in the end, yeah. I think. That's really what's going to finally close the book on yeah. this. Well, Micah, we just want to thank you so much for joining us tonight and giving us so much of your time and your research. It, it's been very, very much appreciated by our listeners. And uh, for folks who joined us uh, as we attempted to test out our streaming, thank you very much for joining us. You can uh, find Micah Hanks, at, uh, his all his stuff at MicahHanks.com. Why don't you tell the listeners uh, about your various projects? You work with, what, four podcasts that you have going on now? Uh, yeah, right now, uh, you know, there's, of course, the flagship, mm-hmm. the Micah Hanks program, which is, you know, my main podcast with all the UFO stuff going on right now. That's been the main focus as of late. Uh, but I occasionally intentionally uh, diverge. And we even talk about Sasquatch from time to time on that show. Uh, but there's an entire podcast I do twice monthly about the Sasquatch subject, and it's called Sasquatch Tracks. Easy to remember. Uh, and that's available at SasquatchTracks.com. Uh, and then I'll also produce the Seven Ages Audio Journal, which is a uh, archaeology podcast. I mean, it's not fringe stuff. It's not looking at uh, ideas, uh, you know, and, and speculations. I mean, it really deals in the area of serious archaeology. And my guys and I, Jason and James and I, have actually uh, visited a number of archaeological sites and actually volunteered and done some field work. And you can tell that a lot of my experience in that field influences the anthropologically centric and historically minded approach that I take with uh, the Sasquatch subject in this research. And then, of course, you know, there are other podcasts I produce, Middle Theory is a news and current events podcast I also do. All that stuff you can find at MicahHanks.com. And indeed, uh, you know, I'm involved in a number of different writing projects, some related to this subject and uh, some related to other subjects, but I'm sure there'll be plenty of fodder for future conversations, my friends. Yeah. Yes. Well, and don't forget the debrief, right? Yes, indeed. Yeah, the debrief.org, which of course is a, uh, it's a news website that looks at science, technology, and all sorts of other things. Of course, there's a lot of UFO coverage there, too. I co-founded this website with Tim McMillan and N.J. Benias and uh, Steve McDaniel and a bunch of other fine folks who are involved really have you know made that quite a uh, project. And we've certainly uh, done a lot of reporting in recent days with regard to the evolving narrative of the government's involvement with UAP. But you know, I'd, I'd had that idea a long time ago, and these guys have really helped to kind of see that to fruition. I couldn't ask for better partners in an endeavor uh, like the debrief, but that's the debrief.org is the website. And uh, yeah, I think that's everything. I'm probably forgetting <laughs> yeah, something you're else. Too, you're too prolific, man. Maybe at some point we'll have to accept that there is no reality uh, to Sasquatch. I mean, I personally doubt that. I, I 
strongly feel that there is an actual basis to this that's more than just myth. But again, even if we had to accept at some point that myth was all it was, it, it's no less fascinating, you know? Mm, indeed. Mm-hmm. Indeed. Well, thanks again for joining us. And uh, Micah, we will see you again soon. And for you, the rest of you folks, this will make up the crux of our content for our next episode. So I uh, hope you enjoy it. And we're going to have to have you back on uh, when the UFO lands on the White House lawn, because that's got to be next. Yeah, I'm hoping for that, too. And I'll be here <laughs> with Bell. All right. <laughs> All right. D from the bunker. <laughs> That's going to wrap up this episode on the ancient history of Sasquatch. A very special thanks to our colleague and friend, Micah Hanks, for joining us tonight. We'll be back in two weeks with a new episode. Please remember to support our sponsors. They help keep the show free and the lights on in Blanket Fortiana. Special thanks to John Bolin. And these are the segues. Hi, I'm Oscar. Ponder the existence of that which is unknown. Galaxy-wide in perpetuity. S-C-A-R-E. Let's get back to the show. Our show is edited by Sarah Voorhees-Wendell and co-produced by Tess Feifel, who is also our head of research. Our theme, which is available as a ringtone, was composed by Judson Crane, and our sound design and additional composing is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to the Astonishing Research Corps. But most importantly, we want to thank you, our listeners. Visit our store at astonishinglegends.com or interact with us and other listeners on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can also support the show at patreon.com slash astonishinglegends, where patrons have access to additional bonus content. No part of this show may be reproduced anywhere without permission. Copyright Astonishing Legends Productions. Good night. Good night.